Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode number 42 of the Primetime Rundown, powered by StreamYard, right here on the Eastern Observer, I-95 Sports Network, and Zingo Television, Channel 198. I'm Ian Schreier, in the host chair tonight for Joey Jarzinka, who I am sure right now is sitting on his living room couch and uh, critiquing every word I say. I'm sure Rob can certainly uh, attest to that. Uh, but we can certainly say tonight with me being in the host chair, no good could, could come of this. But <laughs> all joking aside, I'm pleased to be joined tonight by my co-host on the Primetime Rundown, Rob DeLuca, um, as well as two special guests who have become quite familiar to the Primetime Rundown here, Casey Bryant, Larry Pertakowitz. Gentlemen, happy to have both of you back and appreciate you both uh, willing to spend your Friday evening with us. Rob, let's start with you. Um, how was your week? It's been a week since I last saw you, even though we talked throughout the week. And I do have one question for you. In addition to asking you how you are, what did you think of these? <laughs> well, you know what? Those, uh, my week was great. You know, I had a, it was a fine week. No complaints, really. That jersey came out on Monday. The jerseys came out on Monday. And honestly, the Devils did a great job. It's. I'm not necessarily going to buy it because, again, I, I just have this thing against Adidas ever since they took over for Reebok and have literally struck out on every single thing they've ever done until now. <laughs> so they're going to need to do a little bit more than just that. But overall, a very solid jersey for the devil. I'd say it's a solid B+. Plus. I was going to say, I can't say the same if you're not buying the devil's jersey. I I'm struggling with the fact that they're not going on sale till December 1 because otherwise my Rangers jersey would have been in the mail already. Uh, Casey and Larry, this is each your second time with us. How are you both doing? Good, good. How are you? Doing great. Yeah. Nice. I like how you guys kept it short and sweet, Larry. <laughs> I, I love the haircuts, guys. You made sure to come on nice and fresh this week, and uh, we certainly appreciate that. Uh, gentlemen, we have a lot to get to tonight first, but uh, excuse me, we have a lot to get to tonight, but first we certainly want to thank Black Cats NYC. And while you didn't hear it tonight at the start of our show, you will hear Dirty Little Hipster at the close this evening. Um, it is available for download, as we mentioned, every week here on the Eastern Observer and the Primetime Rundown. Black Cats NYC available for download on Apple Music, Deezer, YouTube, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Google Play, Pandora, and Spotify. Once again, thank you to Black Cats NYC and their frontman, Andrew Giordano, the uncle of a fellow family member on the Eastern Observer, Tyler Adele. So as we get started here and kick off the rundown tonight, ladies, um, ladies and gentlemen, I, guys, I really wanted to start with last night's football game. It was an instant classic, but I feel like we've got to start with baseball. Our footprint is here in New York, and the Mets just always seem to be the gift that just keeps on giving. Um, so the news broke just the other day that – Robinson Cano had been slapped with a 162-game suspension the second time in his career that this has happened. Um, he tested positive for Stanozol, um, which if any of our viewers don't know, it's actually the same drug that Andy Pettit uh, tested positive for. Um, and that came as a result of his collaboration with A-Rod. And we know Cano's relationship with A-Rod as well. So makes us even that much happier uh, that um, A-Rod didn't win the other bid. And in fact, Steve Cohen did. Uh, but he will miss the entire 162-game season. He would not be eligible as a result of not playing this season for the playoffs. Uh, he will forfeit all of the $24 million of his salary back to the Mets. But yet, Mets fans are rejoicing. They're celebrating. Why? Because Steve Cohen's $14 billion is here, baby. Um, we're talking about, if this was, what, this time last year, guys, we're talking about how uh, the money is probably going to be put back in their pockets instead of reinvested into the team. 
This is the first offseason. I can't think in maybe how many years that we're talking about the Mets going after top-tier free agents and, and going after big trades for guys like Francisco Lindor. Gentlemen, I'm, Rob, I'm going to start with you. Um, take me through what your initial reaction was with Cano, and do you see it at all possible um, that we may not ever see Cano again in a Mets uniform? Yeah, I mean, I'm not all that surprised just because he's done it before, you know? It seems like it seems like a lot of these guys you seem to – once they do it, they end up doing it again. So it's almost like there's some sort of addiction to this stuff. But But I'm not a doctor, so I can't confirm that. But in terms of whether or not Cano is going to be a Met again or not, it's tough to say because there was another year on his contract after this season. So it all depends on what Steve Cohen and company want to do because it, it, it and it's going to be based a lot on what's going to happen on this free agency. If they go out and sign a, a second baseman or, or someone like DJ LeMahieu, for example, who can play literally any position in the infield and not screw up – then you can obviously move someone like you know Jeff McNeil over to second base, and the Mets could be in a very good position regardless. And they very likely may not need him if they strike in free agency, as it is very much expected to at this point. Well, the Robinson Cano, I mean, unfortunately, the money only comes off the books for this year, but he still would have two more years uh, left on his deal in 2022 and 2023 to a tab of $24 million, certainly what feels like for Steve Cohen as chump change. Uh, you know, there's been talks on Twitter that uh, the uh, Mets should finally just buy out Bobby Bonilla. But uh, Casey, let's get your thoughts on the whole Robinson Cano. Is he going to stay um, after this year? What's going to happen with Robbie Cano and your initial reaction to the news about uh, him testing positive for PEDs? You know, a lot of people on Twitter, their initial reaction, what they what they wanted to go to was lol Mets. You know, it's it's still Steve Co it's Steve Cohen, but it's still same old Mets. Look at them in the news for negative reasons. Whereas not a single Met fan thought that way. Every single one has been plotting a way to get Robinson Cano out of Queens since the moment he got here. Robinson Cano, we were never attached to, underperformed since he got here, and. Now that he's off the books completely for salary, this is a blessing in disguise for what is a team that is bad defensively because they keep trying to plug and play all of these different guys around the roster. Rob mentioned Jeff McNeil. McNeil has played in right field, left field, third base, second base. He's been bouncing around the entire lineup. Now you could put him in at second base and not feel bad because that is where he's best at second base. Now the question becomes, what do you do with J.D. Davis? The question is, do you trade J.D. Davis now to be cut, or do you play him full-time at third base? Do you go after D.J. LeMayhew to plug in at third base and trade Davis in a potential move for Francisco Lindor? Do you go get a Marcelo Zuna to play left and move Davis to third full-time? Not what I do because J.D. Davis is a complete butcher in the infield, but that's aside the point. Uh, and to your question, Ian, as to whether or not we've seen the last of Robinson Cano, even though Steve Cohen, Steve Cohen has more money than God, I fail to see how Robinson Cano has, has played his last game in New York, if only just because that's still nearly $50 million that you'd be completely buying out. I don't see how he would write a check for that. It just wouldn't be prudent. And there's no one that would take him off of the Mets' hands in a trade. So I think they're kind of stuck with him, I, which is where they were before this season. Even before the season, when Robinson Cano was hitting well last year, there was no taking him because no one would eat that kind of contract, especially now when finances are being impact and, impacted by COVID and everyone's tightening their belt. So, 
TLDR, no, Robinson Cano isn't going anywhere. Yes, the Mets are blessed. <laughs> Larry, I think we can certainly say that this is the trade that will forever haunt Met fans as the legacy of Brody Van Wagen and his Mets general manager. Uh, it was a shortened season this year. Granted, we didn't see a full 162-game uh, season out of Robinson Cano, but uh, to the, belabor the point about him taking the PEDs, this was actually the, these were actually the best numbers uh, that we saw out of Robinson Cano in almost a decade. He hit 316 with 10 homers, 30 RBIs in 49 games, a career high, if you can believe it, um, a 544 slugging percentage. Um, Larry, you hear those numbers. You have to imagine at Cano's age that performance-enhancing drugs had something to do with it. Your, talk, your, your case at this point on Robinson Cano and whether he will remain a Met after 2021. Well, not only did he have such great numbers in those 60 games, how many times was Robinson Cano injured in 2020? And you figured, okay, he's going to be out for a while. And he was back quicker than you thought. And it was very different than how he uh, he rehabbed some injuries in 2019. So I think that does uh, say something in regards to the performance enhancing drugs. But um, do I think uh, we've seen his last days in the Met uniform? I don't. But I think what makes this ownership different than the Wilpons is that next year, um, sorry, 2022, Robinson Cano would be your starting second baseman. Steve Cohen, I think, is okay with paying him $24 million, you know, gets a few million from the Mariners, I believe, and tells him that he can sit on the bench. Um, and that's where the advantage is here with Jeff McNeil. He's not yet getting a large contract. Move him back to his natural position, one of his best positions at second base, and then tell him you are just a second baseman. I think it will make him better. And I know people have talked about Lindor. Uh, what are we going to do with J.D. Davis? I look at it as, hey, guess what? Now we have a spot open in the outfield. Let's go get George Springer. Let's get somebody who can really play center field. That allows us mm -hmm. to move uh, one of our, you know, uh, Nemo or something over to left. It um, Also, uh, just opens up uh, space for other players to uh, get an opportunity to play. So I'm, I'm pretty excited. Uh, <laughs> obviously, at Robinson Cano's, um, uh, you know, uh, whatever. I mean, we, we certainly know the questions that the Mets have um, up the middle of their infield. And uh, we spoke about this with uh, Joey, Rob, and Casey last week. And it, it's a name now it seems like we have to rehash again because after the, the announcement came down about Robinson Cano, uh, Tim Healy, uh, seconds later, um, almost announced that this is the perfect opportunity with $25 million coming off the books to sign 32-year-old DJ LeMayhew, who has no desire uh, to leave New York. I mean, last week we spoke about how there, were, there was an opportunity potentially um, arising with him with the Blue Jays. He has no desire to go north of the border. It seems like he wants to stay in New York. It seems like the Yankees and Mets are the only two teams on his list at this point. He does want a five-year deal, which for a player at 32, and we did mention last week exactly why the Yankees did not pay Cano all the money they did, because do you want to take a chance on committing five years to a second baseman at 32 years of age? Now, granted, the Mets do have a second baseman on the roster. Jeff McNeil, as Casey and Larry both mentioned, his natural position is second base. Casey had mentioned last week that DJ LeMahieu, why would he want to leave the Yankees? That he built his career off playing in the Colorado air and then to come to a ballpark that yields as much offense as it does um, as Yankee at, at Yankee Stadium. So perhaps maybe the needs uh, for the Mets were elsewhere. 
But now with 25 million, which Steve Cohen has already admitted and said, let's in reinvest that into the team. You know, somebody was joking with him on Twitter about bullpen carts, but he says, let's reinvest that into the team. Rob is, I know we discussed it last week. I know I denied the possibility of DJ LeMayu coming to the Mets because I felt that the, the need just wasn't there. But is this a realistic expectation now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, when you've got the money, use it. I mean, there's no reason. This let, let, Let's just talk about LeMayhew and what he's done since he's gotten to New York. In the two seasons, well, I guess, you know, two one season and whatever you want to call 2020, he's hitting 345 since he got here. You don't just do that, especially when you're already over the age of 30. It's clear he's still got a lot of, a lot, a lot of baseball left in him. Worry up, give him like an opt out or something after like three years and worry about it then because he's clearly not going to decline until he's at least 35. And for the love of God, Brian Cashman better stop being cheap. Otherwise, he is going to lose his best player to the guys in Queens. There's not even a question about that. DJ LeMay, who has said he will take less money to stay with the Yankees, it's where he wants to be. But Cashman's got to pony that up. So what if he wants a five-year deal? Figure it out in the contract and worry about it down the line, please. This is not someone you give up, you just let go because they had a great year and could demand what they want. Guess what? Give it to them. I, I understand your feelings on that, Rob. And uh, as we had discussed earlier in the week, it seemed like that uh, Brian Cashman, the general manager of the Yankees, had said we really don't want to give up more than three or four years to a 32-year-old second baseman. Clearly the precedent is there. But the expectation at this point is that he will re-sign with the Yankees. Larry, your thoughts at this point on DJ LeMahieu? You know, listen, DJ LeMahieu is a, a great player. And Rob said he's basically the best player on the Yankees uh, right now. Um, listen, the, the odds are I think he is going to uh, stay in New York. Um, you know, inside, would I like to see the Mets go and get him? Of course, you know. Um, but – I do realistically think that, that the Yankees will eventually get this thing done. Um, you know, they, they, are, they are a World Series uh, contender, like they always are. Um, but I think they need to make you to stay in that category. Casey, it seems like the needs for the Mets are, are, are certainly aligned elsewhere when you have a second baseman who hasn't. I mean, I'm not even so sure that Jeff McNeil in his short career as a Met has even started a game at this point at his career at second base because he really came up just about at the same time that Robinson Cano was traded for uh, along with Edwin Diaz for Jared Kalenic. So do the Mets, should the Mets kick the tires on DJ LeMahieu? Does it make sense? I mean, this is kind of uh, reiterating on what you said last week. Does it make sense to bring them to a bigger ballpark or should the Mets just really have the tunnel vision and kind of keep their, their eyes peeled on a guy like JT Real Mudo and uh, George Springer. It seems like they're getting, you know, they're kicking the tires on everybody, but should they be focusing as much attention on DJ as the others? I think that it's certainly worth taking a look at. Would I invest five years in him at this point? Me personally, no. Uh, but a lot of this has to come down to egos, right? Is that DJ LeMahieu, if he signed with the Mets, I'm sure the Mets would want to have the conversation of Jeff McNeil is a better second baseman than he is a third baseman to help the team. We would like him there and DJ at third because DJ has played third in his career. Would he be willing to do that? Would Jeff, Would we be willing to make the sacrifice 
of Jeff McNeil at third base, where he's not very strong whatsoever. Third base play was a major weak point for the New York Mets this season. Mm-hmm. Do, do you take the hit of Jeff McNeil at third base and keep DJ LeMahieu, who is a gold glover, at second base? It's it's like you're playing a game of Stratomatic and you're dealing with the numbers defensively around the infield. Where, where am I going to get hurt the least? Uh, and then when Robinson Cano comes back, you mentioned, you know, his. We gotta have a conversation. I think it was Larry who said that, you know, you gotta have a conversation with him and tell him that he's he's staying on the bench when he comes back. Will Robinson Cano's ego allow that? Clearly, his ego was fragile enough to the point where he hit 250 last year and had to resort to PEDs to come back in the lineup and produce. So clearly, this is someone who is affected by his performance. Uh, so as far as the infield logjam goes, I think the first domino that has to fall is Rayo Muto. You have to get him priority number one. Priority number two should be getting DJ LeMayhew and solving that problem because if you're just stuck with the same rotation of J.D. Davis, Jeff McNeil, and bringing back Todd Frazier, say, at third base, it's just not good enough at this point. It's it's kind of one thing has to go before the other. Ensure that you get DJ LeMayhew, then you can shop JD Davis. That seems like it would be the the logical progression for the organization. Get one, then deal the other. Larry, as a fellow Mets fan, I want to ask you your opinion here based on kind of the hierarchy that that Casey presented in terms of the preference of where he'd like to see the free agents or possible trades come in. Um it seems like in, in the Mets case, uh, he, he had mentioned JT Real Muto being at the top of that list. We know that the Mets have had uh, cer- certainly their issues over the last 15 years at the catching position. Uh, DJ LeMahieu would certainly uh, fill a hole. Um, names like George Springer has, have, been, have been mentioned. Trades possibly for, for Francisco Lindor have been mentioned. Um, the name that I didn't hear Casey really bring up there was Trevor Bauer, uh, where the Mets, uh, we certainly know aside from DeGrom, where the struggles in the Mets rotation lived, um, and that was really their two through five starters. So for you, based on what Casey just delivered as a Mets fan yourself, um, where would you where would you kind of rank uh, the free agent priorities for the Mets? So I, I agree that uh, JT Riomoto should be the number one target uh, for the Mets. I mean, you know, he he is great behind the plate and he has a great bat. And guess what? No one is technically catching for the Mets right now, right? Uh, Ramos was uh, let go, so they're in a position where they do not have a major league caliber player currently at that position. So that's the first uh, uh, spot that they have to fill, in my opinion. Next, um, I understand uh, DJ LeMahieu, I understand George Springer, but I would start to move towards the rotation at that point. If you saw in this 60-game sprint um, how bad the rotation was outside of Jacob deGrom, and then when people started to get hurt, then even as a, as a diehard Met fan who follows this team, you start hearing names of people who are picturing, and I follow the minors and everything like that. And I go, who is this? You know, so they were very thin um, at pitching. That I think if you can add another frontline starter, they should do that. And they probably will also have to add another back of the rotation uh, kind of pitcher because I don't think, you know, uh, who they signed today, McWilliams, is going to be a back of the rotation guy. I think he's a guy who he's going to be a long reliever. He's a guy who's going to start uh, in the minor leagues, whatever the minor leagues will be. Uh, in right. 2021. Yeah, we, there's certainly a lot of questions heading into free agency, a lot of excitement, uh, questionable excitement, I should say, 
um, surrounding the Mets in regards to free agents. But we certainly want to hear um, from our viewers and the ladies and gentlemen that are watching our show tonight. If you do have a question, it could be about the Mets or um, any topic that we bring up tonight. It doesn't even have to be related uh, to any topics uh, that we have here tonight. We, we invite you to drop them in the comment box on whatever platform you might be watching tonight. And we'd be happy to present that question to our panel. Um, we had started to segue into uh, the Mets pitching. And aside from DeGrom last year, the Mets were 9-21 and in their rotation with an ERA of 6.34. I would say that's certainly a far cry from the days of uh, when we were talking about the Big Five with DeGrom and Harvey and Syndergaard and Mats and Wheeler. Um, Sandy Alderson, uh, he hasn't waited. He's already been kind of kicking the tires, making phone calls to any available free agents at this point that are on the market. Names have surfaced. Corey Kluber, Masahiro Tanaka, Jake Odorizzi, a, uh, a familiar name for Mets current pitching coach Jeremy Hefner, um, who mentored him to an all-star um, nod uh, only two years ago. Um, Mike Miner, another name that they were very interested in um, at the uh, trade deadline two years ago and in the free agent market the year after that. So, um, Casey, I'm going to leave with you here. Uh, what is your wish list? I mean, there's been a lot of names. Obviously, Trevor Bauer high on that list. But where does your wish list kind of uh, correlate in regards to what names you'd like to see be brought in? And also, maybe do you want to see a David Peterson back in the rotation from the, the existing rotation that the Mets have now? The appeal of Trevor Bauer to me is that he has been very vocal throughout his career that he doesn't want to take five, six, seven-year deals. He would rather take short-term deals and kind of go where the competition is. It's very NBA of him where he wants to take short-term deals, renegotiate, kind of reevaluate, reset his press. And his agent, I'm sure, will try to talk him out of that and earn his money while his, val his value will never be higher than it is right now coming off of a tremendous Cy Young campaign. But the appeal to Mets organization, I'm sure, is that Trevor Bauer will probably only be asking for three, four years. He won't be asking for six, seven years like a Santana type deal, like what Jacob deGrom just got a five-year contract. After him, I, I here's a hot take, I think, among Mets fandom. Seth Lugo should be nowhere near the starting rotation. 100%. Yep. Seth Lugo struggled at the end of last year, and granted, who didn't? in the New York Mets organization and outside of Jacob DeGrom. Seth Lugo is a reliever. He wants to start too bad. It's it's he belongs in the bullpen. The Mets bullpen is not strong enough to the point, especially after just losing Justin Wilson in free agency. Uh, it's it, you need Seth Lugo as that rock in the back end because no one is solid enough. Not Edwin Diaz, not Dylan Batances, not anyone, not Ariel Horado or whoever we're trusting this week. <laughs> it's, it's, it's it, Seth Lugo belongs back there. So the alternative then is to go all in on Bauer, try to outbid everyone for Charlie Morton. You've already brought back Marcus Stroman. You hope that Noah Syndergaard is ready by the midway point of the season. You want to try to collect now these veteran guys who are not Michael Waka and who are not Rick Porcello, who are reclamation projects or scrap heap bargain bin guys. Now you can go after those $8 million pitchers, those $9 million pitchers that previously the only deal that you made for a double-digit million-dollar player was Bartolo Colon. And that was like a big deal that the Mets got Bartolo Colon for $10 million for two years. Now you can throw around that money. You can get Mike Miner. You can get these guys, these guys that might be available. Oda Rizzi was the name that you mentioned. You should get real ball players in the starting rotation. And this is the first time 
since Omar Minaya's early days when he was bringing in Orlando Hernandez mm -hmm. and, and Tom Glavin and real pitchers, albeit at the end of their career, but real pitchers, Pedro Martinez, the, those mid-2000s Mets that actually spent. Larry, we certainly saw the results, albeit in a short season, uh, the struggles of trying to piecemeal that rotation together. Um, certainly, Steven Matz appears to, to no longer, um, it's been that way for a while, but no longer be the pitcher that the Mets hope he would be after uh, coming off the Tommy, off Tommy John. Uh, they had signed Michael Waka and Rick Porcello to one-year deals, hoping to cash in on a low-risk, high-reward deal. Uh, Noah Syndergaard underwent Tommy John surgery. He's at least not going to be due back until maybe May or June. Uh, Casey had already mentioned about Stroman opting out but signing his QO, so we know he'll be back. Um, where does your wish list at this point, based on what we saw last year, to what we hope to see in 2021? So with the starting rotation, you know, you, you obviously you have DeGrom, and I'm happy that Stroman is back. I think it was smart of him to take the qualifying offer, and it was great for the Mets that he did take the uh, qualifying offer to at least have another starter already locked in. Um, but I don't think he's the uh, big prize uh, pitching uh, in the free agent market. You know, they, they should go after uh, Trevor Bauer. Casey mentioned a guy like Charlie Morton, right? Um, you know, you will get Syndergaard back at some point. You don't know what you're going to get from Syndergaard, but I think he will come back pitching with a purpose um, because he should, because he has not been dominant really since 2016. Um, you know, he showed signs in 15 and in 16, you know, he got the chance to start the wild card game. Um, and he pitched well, except his, uh, his bullpen couldn't help him. Uh, welcome back to New York familiar. Um, and <laughs> with, with regards to Peterson, I, I think he should remain in the rotation. He might be a number five, uh, guy in the rotation, but if he's number five, I, I would be very happy with my rotation. I think Steven Matz is a guy who has uh, been given so many opportunities. And I was a fan of uh, Matt's, but I think it might be time to move him to the bullpen or, you know, um, move on. Can I just say that that is genuinely the first time I've thought about Jerry's Familia since August. <laughs> I, I genuinely forgot he existed. And I was living in peaceful bliss until <laughs> Thank you, Larry. <laughs> Well, well, Larry, I think what we also forgot to mention in that 2016 wildcard game is the pitcher on the other side of the mound for the Giants was Madison Bumgarner, and uh, he pitched an even better game uh, um, than uh, than Noah Syndergaard did. And Noah Syndergaard left after eight and was shut out at eight shutout innings. Instead, uh, it was uh, Bumgarner who matched him with a complete game shutout. So uh, exactly, Rob, as an outsider, as a as a Yankee fan, um, I kind of want to get your opinion on this in regards to. Uh, is 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 Masahiro Tanaka a name that the that the Mets should be considering, or where do you feel the Mets' loyalty should lie in, in their rotation for 2021? It's not that Masahiro Tanaka shouldn't be on the Mets list. There's just other guys better than him, you know. And also Tanaka's getting up there in age already. He came he came over to the MLB rather late, so it's he, he's over 30 now. So it, it's really interesting. I'm really interested to see what we're gonna do. I'm not gonna be surprised if the Yankees bring him back, honestly, probably for a year, maybe two. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they try to move on from him. But, you know, he's – I'm sure he'll get – he'll probably field some offers. I don't think he's going to sign back right away. But it'll be interesting to see what happens with Tanaka over the next couple of months. But I do expect him to return to the Yankees on a very short-term deal. 
I want to create a, uh, a general conversation among the group here with respect to uh, where the Mets should really turn their attention to for their rotation in 2021. Um, Rob, you know, you had given us your input on Tanaka. Certainly he has an injury history as well. Um, a career 3.33 earn run average in 10 postseason starts uh, for a team that's aiming uh, to reach the postseason wouldn't certainly be a bad thing as a back-end rotation guy. Um, he's coming off a shoulder injury, but a guy like Corey Kluber, who was a two-time Cy Young winner, didn't get a chance to play any part of the 2020 season. Um with the, uh, I should say, didn't get a chance to play any part of the 2020 season uh, with the Texas Rangers um, because he suffered a shoulder injury. Maybe he's a name that you think of. Um, are, do either of those names, I guess Casey or Larry, do either of those, and, and Rob as well, do I, do any of those names, because it seems like Mets fans appear to be fixated on, on Trevor Bauer and Charlie Morton, understandably so. Charlie Morton wants to stay on the East Coast. Uh, Trevor Bauer is certainly entertained by the words that were said by Sandy Alderson in his opening press conference on his return to the Mets. Um, is there, a, is, I guess, is there a name that we've, we've mentioned aside from those two that, that the Mets should really uh, make a phone call to and, and try to get in on? I think what the Mets should be cautious of is pursuing these guys through a trade. I think the reason why Morton and Bauer are so attractive is because it wouldn't take anything other than money to get them. Uh, the fact that you would be trading for a pitcher more often than not, when you're trading for a big name pitcher, they want pitching prospects in return. The Mets have none. The cupboard is bare. And that's entirely because of the previous administration here in the Brody Van Wagen era. I uh, you know, hope he's enjoying his, his days on the beach here as he kicks back and relaxes and watches Anthony Kay in a Blue Jays uniform, watches Justin Dunn in a Mariners uniform, not for nothing, but all the Mets fans freaking out about who our center fielder is going to be. And George, go, go get George Springer. Jared Kelnick would have been our starting center fielder next year. Let's call it what it is. But anyway, to, to the original point, they should be targeting guys that wouldn't cost any assets to get because really they have to be extremely protective of their prospects, what few they have. Larry. Yeah, I I would have to agree with that. And what make and I know we don't know who the current who the new president of the baseball operations will be. We don't know who, you know, if there'll be a general manager as well and who that will be. But we know from Sandy Alderson's past is that um, he is not somebody who is going to quote unquote give up the farm uh, for somebody. If you even if you look at the trade, I think we talked about this uh, two weeks ago. If you look at the trade for uh, Cespedes, they gave up Fulmer, right? Oh, okay. And Fulmer, you know, came on like a bolt of lightning, right? right? And now, who's Michael Fulmer today, right? So so at least a guy like Sandy um, is patient and knows what to do in regards to trading uh, prospects. But uh, the last administration has traded away so many prospects. They may have drafted well, right? But those players are so far removed from being able to play major league games that I don't know what value they have uh, to these uh, other teams. And, you know, I'm looking at the list of the other uh, pitchers uh, who are available, like those lower level uh, pitchers. And there's definitely a drop in quality after mm -hmm. you get um, to Trevor Bauer, Charlie Morton, and, uh, you know, Tanaka. There, after that, there is a drop in quality where you start to feel like, you're the Wilpons and you're back in your normal aisle where you've always shopped. You had mentioned uh, that, that there's really no president of baseball ops, no general manager yet. Hopefully those positions, or I should say the Mets are hoping to have those positions filled sooner rather than later. Uh, some of the names being rumored 
uh, Mark Chernoff from the Indians, uh, Bobby Heck from the Tampa Bay Rays. Uh, those are the names that we've heard uh, the most frequently. Um, but the name that we're hearing even more frequently now with regards to uh, front office vacancies is Theo Epstein, um, who has now just stepped down recently uh, as the president of baseball operations with the Cubs. And this is going to lead into our 631 sports update that we do here on the primetime rundown that as our show airs from 6 to 8, we, we have a sports update at 631 to uh, represent Suffolk County and a 718 to uh, obviously represent uh, New York City. Um, our show does not start at 5 o'clock, unfortunately, so we cannot do a typical where Long Island, which is our footprint, can't do a 516 and a 631. Um, and unfortunately for people like Rob in New Jersey, there is no 973. So uh, <laughs> this is our 631 sports update. And uh, Theo Epstein has announced uh, the architect uh, behind the Red Sox and Cubs curse-breaking championship winning teams. He was uh, there in 2004 when the, as the general manager when the Red Sox broke their curse. He was in Chicago in 2016 as their general manager when the Cubs broke their curse. And uh, he hasn't completely shut the door on a front office job, but he says he wants to take the year off. Um, he He's aspiring to eventually uh, join an ownership group, so eventually he would like to be a CEO of a franchise. Uh, but he hasn't completely shut the door on a front office job. Uh, the reports are that the Phillies um, are going to reach out, and I'm sure they're going to be one of many teams that would look to covet the services of uh, – one of the best general managers in all of baseball, just simply based off reputation and, and longevity and history. Um, but where will he end up at this point? We'll see if he takes a year off. If he doesn't, we shall see. Um, let's uh, let's let's move across the Triborough Bridge uh, to the Yankees, where um, the Yankees, who whose bullpen was has historically been so reliable um, in regards to having pitchers like Aroldis Chapman and Zach Britton and Tommy Canely, and we go down the list, it, it always seemed like every year when we entered the baseball season that the Yankee bullpen was never the issue that we had to worry about. It was maybe the rotation, but if you could get the ball to the fifth or the sixth inning, that the door was going to be shut just based off having guys, like I said, like a Chapman, a Britton, a Betances. But for the Yankees in 2020, a 60-game season nevertheless, a 4.51 bullpen ERA their relief pitchers had a negative 0.8 wins above average. That was the lowest of any position for the Yankees um, in 2020. Chapman and Britton are expected to be back. Chad Green, who I think the Yankees are still hoping he would refine his, refine his form from only a couple of years ago. Um, Tommy Canley has elected free agency. He's coming off Tommy John. Um, Adam Adambino's name has been bouncing back and forth on the trade block. Can you depend on guys going forward like Luis Sessa and Jonathan Holder? Rob, let's start with the Yankee fan here. The setup and closer roles still appear to be locked in for another year, but where can the Yankees turn to at this point for reliability and middle relief? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough that we lost Tommy Canley for the year and now he's gone because he didn't want to go. He he does not want to take his minor league assignment. I don't blame him for that. But at the same time, a player takes that as a slap in the face. So I would be very surprised if he comes back for – unless he obviously would do it for a pay raise, but I don't think that's going to happen. Brian, or Brian Cashman has a enough to worry about in terms of spending money apparently. But, you know, it's – the Yankees are still the Yankees. You know, they'll still spend a little money to make things better. But it's it, it has been weird with the Yankees for the last couple of years in terms of – the refusal to address pitching problems, mainly starting pitching, because like you said, Ian, their their bullpen has 
historically been one of the best over the past couple of years. I cannot picture that we're going to make too big a splash on the pitching side. Really, I just don't. I just don't see it. I think they they really do want to see Chad Green get back to what he was, and I believe he can. I do not think he that what he we saw from him this past season was anything um, sh- of showing what he really can do. I. I would say let's give him another year. Me personally, I would love to shoot Luis Sessa and Jonathan Holder to Mars, but <laughs> nonetheless, like I, like I have wait, I have patiently waited for these guys to come into their roles and be effective out of the bullpen, and they have literally disappointed me almost ninety five percent of the time. So I I would love to move on from them. We also the Yankees also have guys down in the minor leagues. Now it'll be interesting to see what our new minor league affiliate, the Hudson Valley Renegades can eventually bring the Yankees minor league team. Shout out Casey Bryant right there. Shout out eight, four, five, go Gates. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see now that the Yankees have new minor league affiliates. So it's almost like it's completely different players, completely different system. So we will see what will happen with the Yankees between now and the start of spring training, well, I'm sure we'll see some names that we might not expect, but at the same time, I don't expect them to go out there and get someone like, you know, Trevor Bauer or Charlie Morton. Would I want them to? Sure. Charlie Morton's not necessarily out of the question because he will cost significantly less than someone like Trevor Bauer. But it's, it's, it all comes down to what are they going to do with someone like Jay Happ, which I hope it's finally time to move on. But, you know, Things remain to be seen. Brian Cashman is a wild card at this point. Larry, there aren't a lot. It doesn't seem like the free agent market is filled with uh, prospects of uh, top-tier free agent relievers. Uh, The one name that certainly does come up a lot is Liam Hendricks from Oakland, but Hendricks is a closer, and that's not a uh, position that the Yankees are looking to fill right now, and I'm not so sure that even if he'd be coming to the Yankees and almost guaranteed a spot in the postseason every single year, that Liam Hendricks would be willing to take a, a demotion, so to speak, to a sixth or a seventh inning role. Uh, is there someone in free agency right now that maybe the Yankees can turn to, or is there someone um, that the Yankees already have on their roster that you think is going to step up for them in 2021 and solidify that bullpen? Well, look, it's it, it's something that that the Yankees have have done, right? They have multiple closers in their bullpen, right? They have Chapman. They have written, right? And it's sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't work. So yeah, okay, you can go in and bring in Hendricks, but now you got three guys who were major league closers, and now that sounds great. We got a seven, eight, and nine, but it 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 doesn't work that way. I remember, you know, all right, I'm not, I don't want to bring it back to the Mets, but I remember years ago when the Mets had gotten uh, JJ Putz, and I remember talking to you about it, saying, yep. "Wow, we got we got another closer. This guy's gonna pitch the eighth inning." And it didn't work out that way. Um, so, but it, it, relievers, it's always a tough market, right? Relievers are volatile. You go year to year um, on, on most relievers. The Yankees are used to, uh, you know, for 20 years having the best closer of all time, right? And he did it year in, year out. You don't normally see that uh, in Major League Baseball, especially today. With all the advanced statistics, um, 
you, you just see that the hitters are able to uh, gain an advantage um, at some point um, with all the data that's out there now. Uh, but I do think the Yankees have to do something. I love to see Adam Adovino actually uh, step up because uh, he was a guy when they picked him up, I figured it would be lights out uh, for them. And uh, he didn't have a great 2020. Casey, your thoughts? I think that you should never count out the Yankees to bring in anyone. You know, you can say you can look up and down the free agent list and say, eh, that guy's a closer, he may not come here. That guy's a closer, he may not come here. Zach Britton was a closer for Baltimore. Uh, who who remembers screaming at Buck Showalter for not bringing in Zach Britton during that playoff game against the Toronto Blue Jays, instead relying on Ubaldo Jimenez to deal to Edward Encarnacion. So I, that's why I don't really count the Yankees out of anything. They would absolutely throw the bag at a Mark Melanson if he showed interest in New York. They would absolutely show interest in Liam Hendricks, who is one of those names that always gets bandied about. What about Alex Colomay? Again, shout out Hudson Valley Renegades. Alex <laughs> Colomay, former, former game short season race prospect, eventually went to the White Sox, wiped the floor with the AL Central. He's one of those guys that I – I fail to see how the, how the Yankees don't go in on anyone because they are, at the end of the day, the Yankees. They don't care about need. They don't care about any rules. They say, we're the Yankees. Come here, and you will win. And that's what they did with Britain. That's what they, they brought back Chapman when a closer role wasn't necessarily guaranteed. Uh, they, they dealt with Dellen Batances when Batances was at the top of his game. Could have closed somewhere. Didn't. He stayed a setup man. It's what the Yankees do. Go ahead, Rob. Yeah, I mean, Casey, you're right. That is what they do. It's just a matter of how Cashman does it. Because, like, like we've seen, like, we're Yankee fans on Twitter. You know, you know the very smart people of of them. So they say, we'll be like, oh yeah, we need. But they're right when they say, oh, go get us a starting pitcher. Brings in John Carlos Stanton. Oh, go get us, go get us the starting pitcher. Brings in DJ LeMahieu. Granted, that was still phenomenal. And please, for the love of God, bring DJ LeMahieu back. Give him whatever he wants. Pay him, <laughs> hand him the check. Say write a number and sign it. Bob, when you're, when you're dating, you can't come off this desperate. You know, you have to be able to play. <laughs> no, there's no planning. When you're when you're dealing with the literal god of of like of Short of small ball hitting, just give them the money, please. But yes, I do think that that the bullpen, it, they probably will reach out to one more, maybe one guy, you know, try to get that seventh inning in. But I do think they want to see Adam Adovino get back to that, and I really hope he does get back to that because that twenty twenty season of his, real as Larry said, really did just go yikes. Brian Cashman, if you're listening, Rob DeLuca says, write DJ LeMahieu. And I'm sure he is speaking for many Yankee fans who feel that way about DJ LeMahieu returning to the Bronx. But uh, the concerns are there for sure for the Yankees right now with regards to their middle relief and also their rotation. I mean, aside from Garrett Cole, uh, Tanaka, Paxton, Happ right now, all free agents don't appear to going to be re-signed by the Yankees. Maybe we'll see something down the road where they bring one or two of those guys back. Uh, let's wrap up the baseball portion um, for tonight with res the respect to uh, Cooperstown has announced that the Hall of Fame ballot is out. Um, I've got to say there's certainly a lot of uninspiring uh, first-timers <laughs> on the ballot. Uh, That's a nice way to say it. 
Yeah, um, I, I don't think a Nick Swisher uh, earned maybe uh, 75% of the vote or a Dan Harron or a LaTroy Hawkins. But I think so there, there are a couple of interesting names. They're not first ballot Hall of Famers at all. But I think names like Mark Burley, uh, Tory Hunter, uh, Tim Hudson are names uh, that maybe we could see down the road um, that would get enough of the, of the, the uh, vote, I should say, to at least stay on the ballot and maybe down the road. Uh, get um, inducted into the Hall of Fame. But it begs the question, guys, uh, could this be the year uh, where we see the cheaters um, get into the Hall of Fame? Uh, last year, we certainly know what happened with Kurt Schilling. He got 70%. So um, coming into this year, he's really only he's only 5% off being inducted. Clemens at 61% and Bonds at 60.7%. So with a weak class, guys, is this the year we could see one of those cheaters go in? I mean, look, I'm not going to say that they deserve it because, you know, cheaters should never prosper. But, you know, it's going to be close. It's going to be close as I these guys are all – some of these guys are on their ninth year out of, out of a possible ten. So they, they are definitely running out of time here. So the, – and the, clo the closest guy right now is Roger Clemens. And the most he's ever seen is 61%. So that's a long ways off from 75. So it'll be very close to see. In terms of someone I would want to see get in there, finally. I mean, I know they haven't even been on the ballot that long. Well, give or take what you think is long. But I would love to see a guy like Omar Vizquel and Billy Wagner get in there. This is long overdue to – legends of the game that rightfully deserve a place in Cooperstown. If literally I've taken a look at this whole list right here, those are absolutely my top two that I want to see get in right this second. But you have to remember that uh, wh whoever's going in as part of the 2021 class is certainly going to be overshadowed by the fact that they're going to go in the same year now as uh, Derek Jeter, because there was no, um, enshrinement ceremony last year in Cooperstown because of everything that took place with COVID-19. Uh, Larry, your thoughts on the Hall of Fame, and uh, is this the year that we see a Bonds, a Schilling, um, a Clemens get in? And You know what? I think, unfortunately, this is going to be uh, the year where, where we are going to see one or two uh, of them get in, but I think, um, you know, the baseball gods may have uh, aligned the stars perfectly because if there is an, a ceremony in 2021, um, they will be overshadowed, as you said, by Derek Jeter, someone who is, um, has a great baseball resume, is well-respected throughout the league, is never known to cheat, and it might be perfect to have him be the face of the enshrinement ceremony. Oh, yeah, we also have somebody like a Clemens or a Bonds behind you, but it'll make it all about uh, Derek Jeter. It may be the perfect scenario in which to have one of these guys come in in his shadow. Um, do I think one of them is going to get in? at least one of them will. I mean, Kurt Schilling got 70% last year. You look at the ballot, the number of uh, first-timers that are on here. I mean, you said it, but at first glance, most of these guys are not Hall of Famers. Um, Mark Burley did have uh, a great career. Is it Hall of Fame worthy? I'm not sure. Um, Torrey Hunter had a great career. You know, Tim Hudson was good. But then you go down the line after that. I understand Aramis Ramirez you know, was a good ball player. He played also for a very long time to achieve uh, those stats. So I think it's a weak first-time class. Um, I think because of that, 
one of these guys, uh, maybe two of them, has to get in. But Derek Jeter will overshadow them. Rob kind of touched on it there, Casey. Uh, one of the names that I'm certainly interested in to see if he gets in. Um, he had gotten uh, 52% of the vote last year is Omar Vizquel. Unfortunately, his numbers with the bat always seem to, uh, you know, how can I say it? It looks like that his his numbers with the bats appear to be the, um, the deficiency for him in regards to getting into the Hall of Fame. I mean, he's got the best fielding percentage of any player um, at his position in Major League Baseball history. Um, he's an 11-time Gold Glover, a three-time All-Star, made most of his living as as one of the best shortstops in the game with the Cleveland Indians. Do you think that we could see an Omar Vizquel or, as Larry said, a Billy Wagner, and Rob said it too, uh, get in this year? Or is this the year, um, as we has, had discussed when we first uh, begged the question, is this the year where we see a cheater get into the Hall of Fame? For Omar Vizquel, I think that, you know, yeah, the bat was never his strong suit, but let's not write him off as this, as a poser, you know, Bill Mazeroski was a fake, you know, Bill Mazeroski couldn't hit to save his life. Uh, and, and he's in the hall of fame. Omar Vizquel hit 300 a couple times. Omar Vizquel has 2,800 hits, you know, and granted he is a little bit of a compiler in that regard, but you know, it's, he's, he still was a capable hitting shortstop which is a position which is not always known for its offense you know yeah if you look at the late 90s run that he had in terms of averages go, going down the line 297 280 288 333 287 that brings you to the turn of this uh, of the uh, century and that's those are real numbers uh so omar viscal i have no doubt that he'll eventually get in you know that, that's not a concern what is my concern and what is my cause that i will rally around i will i will get the crusade a going is for Billy Wagner. Now that Edgar Martinez is in, I can refocus my efforts from championing one cause to the next because Billy Wagner was the best closer in baseball, not named Mariano Rivera. He was for a time, for sure. He was. For I would argue there wasn't a single moment in his entire career where he wasn't that guy. He had one year, one year where his ERA was above three, and that was a year in which he pitched 20 innings because he got hurt. Every other year, his ERA was under three. He had a better ERA than Trevor Hoffman nine times. He had a better whip than Trevor Hoffman eight times. He had a better war than Trevor Hoffman nine times. The only reason why Billy Wagner is not a slam dunk Hall of Famer is because he didn't pull a Trevor Hoffman and pitch until he was decrepit. Trevor Hoffman, if you remember at the end when he was trying his, his darndest to get to 600 saves with the Brewers, was embarrassing. I, it, was, it was such a spectacle of how the mighty have fallen, and he's crawling to that 600th save to where he got yanked from the closer role that season in favor of John Axford. I, they, the, the Brewers were literally saying to themselves, take anyone. Uh, we don't care. He said, Trevor, it's great. You're three saves away from 600. We don't care. Put in John Axford. So Billy Wagner was at his peak better than Trevor and didn't have, saved everyone the embarrassment of watching a Billy Wagner that couldn't pitch, especially when his last season was his best season, debatably. So Billy Wagner is 100% deserving to be a Hall of Famer, if only just because no other closer, again, outside of Mariano Rivera, gets to go out on top. Billy Wagner went out on top. Lee Smith didn't go out on top. Lee Smith went out a minor leaguer in the Royals system. He got cut twice from two different AAA squads. Uh, Brad Lidge didn't go out uh, uh, on top. He had a 70 RA and got cut. Jose Valverde didn't go out on top. K-Rod isn't going to go out on top. No other closer gets to have the reputation where Mariano, 
Billy Wagner, and no one else. Dennis Eckersley didn't even do it. Dennis Eckersley was politely told by the Red Sox, have you considered coaching? Uh, it's, it's, <laughs> that, that's a true story. It's, it, Billy Wagner deserves to be in the Hall of Fame because he saved everyone the embarrassment of looking back on his 40-year-old season going, eh, he, he didn't have his fastball anymore. He always had his fastball, and he deserves to be in. Casey, does it seem like, and, and I feel like this is always the case unless your name, as you mentioned, is Mariano Rivera, but it, you had mentioned a great name in Edgar Martinez about whether or not designated hitters uh, belong in, in the Hall of Fame, and, and certainly the same statement is made for closers in the Hall of Fame. Do you feel, as as the same with DHs, that closers get a bad rep when it comes to being enshrined in Cooperstown? 100%. I think that even setup guys get – the save is the only thing that anyone ever points to when they look at relievers, right, which is such BS. you know. And I think that you're eventually going to start seeing a revolution in that regard if only just because wins are slowly declining in overall value. Uh, the case in point, the Jacob deGrom career. Uh, but Billy Wagner has the saves. Billy Wagner retired, I believe, number two in saves behind – excuse me, number three behind Rivera and behind Hoffman in saves. So he was always kind of at the top and closers get a bad rep. We shouldn't be living in a world where Jack Morris, who is, you know, very good pitcher, don't get me wrong, but is not even in the top 15 of starting pitchers of his era. He's in the hall of fame. Mike Messina, good pitcher, very good pitcher, but give me the best pitchers of the 1990s. Where's Mike Messina? 10, 11, He's behind Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, Halliday, Clemens, Martinez, Johnson. There's seven off the bat without thinking. So we shouldn't be letting in the 15th best starting pitcher of his era and not the second best reliever of his era. It's a double standard. Larry, Rob, you guys agree with Casey's point? Yeah, yeah absolutely. I mean, yeah. he, 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 hit the nail, he hit the nail on the head there. I mean, Thank you. this is my soapbox. I'll step back now. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, but yeah, just, that was their job. Their job was to be a closing pitcher. They have just as much right to be in the Hall of Famer as anyone else, just like a designated hitter. That's their job. That's what they're getting paid to do. They're getting paid to hit the ball. If they're hitting the ball well, put them in. The shame yeah. is, and I, I again, I hate to keep jumping in and interrupting, but this is a cause I feel very strongly about. The shame is that if we're not letting in Billy Wagner, we're never letting in Joe Nathan. And Joe Nathan is a Hall of Famer. We're never even going to consider Francisco Rodriguez. And Rodriguez, well, I don't think he's a Hall of Famer, should get votes. He he's got career record for a reason, reason, right? Yeah, he's, he has that emergency. safe season. K-Rod was really good for a long time. It's And it's just a shame because it, you you brought up the steroid era users, right, Ian? If we're, let, if we're not letting in Barry Bonds, we're not letting in anyone. That's right. the standard we've set. So Manny Ramirez should be in the Hall of Fame. Isn't going to get there. A-Rod, going to be very interesting to see what happens there. <laughs> David Ortiz, who is both a steroid user and a designated hitter, going to be very interesting to see what happens there. <laughs> Larry, your final thoughts before we move on. Yeah, I mean, listen, I'm going to jump on exactly what Rob said. They, they have one job, and you know what? They have a pretty tough job. Shut the door. Come in. It's a tight game. The game is on the line, big pressure situation, and you got to get the three outs. Sometimes it's more than that, but most of the time it's you got to get three outs. And um, and there's no doubt about it, Mariano is the greatest of all time. And I think it's important that he was also the unanimous uh, 
Hall of Famer because with that, at a position that was always the question of, well, you know, he's a closer, he only pitches one inning, right? The writers decided, all of them together, that this guy deserves it and that he is the greatest of all time. So I think that also may open the door uh, for closers uh, to get into the hall. Gentlemen, let's shift the needle now to the gridiron where last night we saw another instant classic between the Seattle Seahawks and the Arizona Cardinals. Um, Both quarterbacks were efficient. They were brilliant, especially Kyler. Um, and I'm not uh, using any having any favorites here, but um, he w- it seemed like he was struggling in the first half because on a sack in the first quarter, he afterwards had experienced some shoulder discomfort. Uh, in the end, Carlos Dunlap, though, for Seattle uh, makes the save, uh, makes the game uh, saving, I should say, sack um, to sack Kyler Murray on fourth and ten. Um, as a football fan, I didn't understand why they were taking deep shots down the field with that much time left in the fourth quarter on second and third down. But in the end, it, it was the penalties that really did in Arizona. Ten penalties for 115 yards. Um, we'll get we'll get into them a little bit deeper, but there were certainly three of them uh, that, that played a huge factor in the result of the game last night. Larry, let's start with you. Your instant reaction to last night's game. You know, going into this game, going into this game, it was the Seattle Seahawks defense, defense, defense. They have defense isn't playing well. Well, they played a great game last night on defense. They held uh, the Arizona Cardinals to, um, I believe it was their lowest uh, point scored uh, this season, yards. They, you know, Kyle Murray is a great football player, but they were able to contain him. On that final drive, they were able to um, put the stop in Dunlop uh, coming through. Uh, what a move to, to get him. And you know, it again says the NFC West is by far the best division in the in the NFL, and uh, it, it's going to be a wild ride. Um, even with your uh, Rams, it's going to be a wild ride uh, getting into the end of the season. Rob, your your take on another instant classic between Arizona and Seattle? It seems like we're set up for this for years to come. Yeah, no, I'm lo- I'm loving the way the NFC West is playing out right now. It's going to be a great race towards the end. Last night's game, phenomenal, and on a Thursday, no less. You know, that's a rare occurrence with these awful with the rep- the reputation of just awful Thursday night games. Usually, we finally put two good teams on Thursday night, and look at the re- result we get as a product. Phenomenal game. I thought both quarterbacks were great. This was a dogfight right to the end. And in the end, you just even even without fans, apparently it's just too difficult to try and win in Seattle. Yeah, no, Rob, my my highlight of Thursday night football is normally the fact that you can watch it in 4K and HDR. It's like, all right, cool, I can watch it. It looks really cool on my TV. <laughs> but to be able to get a good game at the same time is amazing. Nice added bonus there, and just yeah, uh, apparently Seattle's just that hard to win. And you know what? This race is going to be fun down the stretch. Casey, it seems like we're really set up for the next decade in the NFC West, at least with three of the four franchises in that division, Arizona with Kyler Murray. Uh, We know about Let Russ Cook in Seattle, the legend of Let Russ Cook. Um, uh, Jared Goff in in Los Angeles. Uh, You know, the jury still remains out, I guess, on Jimmy Garoppolo, but uh, there's something to be said about being uh, the defending NFC champions. Um, do you feel that way about the NFC West going forward and, and your instant reaction to the game last night? Isn't that wild that we're talking about a team that was five minutes away from winning the Super Bowl? All of a sudden, we're throwing up our arms going, eh, you know, they're not that great. <laughs> you know, 
that's the beauty of football is, is that every single year is a complete question mark. You never really know what's going to happen. Uh, what I was really surprised by was the Cardinals' complete inability to move the ball on the ground. You know, it was the first time all season that they had been limited to under 100 yards rushing, and they didn't even come close to that marker. They had, what, 57 yards, I think, on the ground, and they just were unable to move the ball. And I granted, if you have that receiving core, why not try to take shots down the field with Fitzgerald, with, with DeAndre Hopkins, with Kirk? Uh, but it was really the rushing game to me that stood out as a big difference maker because when the Cardinals are successful, they're able to do both. They're able to take those shots down the field and they're able to get it to Kenyon Drake to, to push the ball forward. And they weren't able to do that last night. And that's, it was almost like a repeat of the Legion of boom, you know, with the Seattle uh, Seahawks where they were able to hold the line on the defensive front. And that was really, really strong from Seattle. It's going to be a great, as Rob said, great push down the stretch between two really strong teams. Yeah, it was nice uh, to see uh, the Seattle defense, as Larry had mentioned, too, to finally come alive. Uh, they were running a lot of blitz packages, as we saw out there. And um, a mem- uh, someone in the secondary that loves to be involved from his time with the Jets on blitzes is certainly Jamal Adams. And we saw that a lot last night. But uh, credit to Kyler Murray. I mean, he didn't get off to a great start. Um, I believe they were down 14-6. to six. Uh, The Cardinals were at the half uh, for the game. He was 29-42 for 269 and two, but in the second half alone, he was 19 to 25 for 166 in those two touchdowns. Uh, Russell Wilson, on the other hand, 23 of 28 for 197 and two. Uh, another instant classic. Uh, I would not be surprised if we're watching these two teams duke it out again in the playoffs. Um, and, th- and that kind of leads us into our next conversation with respect to the NFC West. And it, as we, I, I believe we're insinuating, it's going to be a three horse race to the end, unfortunately, because of. Uh, all the injuries that have befallen the 49ers. Uh, granted, when Larry was on the show two weeks ago, um, you know we weren't even ready to count the Rams as a possible playoff team. And after they took care of Seattle, we're talking about the Rams possibly winning the division. They're only a half game back. Um, Arizona only one game back at six and four. Um, the Rams and uh, uh, excuse me um, are the only team left in the NFC West, at least that's in contention, uh, that still have to play. They'll play Brady and the Bucks on Monday night. Uh, but um, I guess let's start, Rob. Let's start with you, with you. Where do your allegiances lie at this point right now with the NFC West? You know, it's going to be a very tight finish, but I do think Seattle's going to end up pulling this out at the when, by the end of Week 17. I think that they they're just there's too many weapons on offense there that can't be stopped. I mean, look, you got Russell Wilson, a quarterback who can clearly still deal it. You've got young guys in DK Metcalf who can literally catch anything if it's in his vicinity. If it's literally within his arm reach, it's getting caught. And then, of course, you've got a little all-reliable in Tyler Lockett there in your second receiver. It's, it is, And then, of course, you've got the return of Carlos Hyde last night with a, a phenomenal running game by him. There's just so many weapons on, on offense there. Like, look, I'm not counting out Arizona. Like, you know, you got you – got, Kyler Murray playing some phenomenal football lately. You've got DeAndre Hopkins, who's a freak of nature. Larry Fitzgerald showing apparently, hey, I may be old, but I can still play this game of football here. And mm-hmm. so it's going to be close, but I think in the end, Seattle's just a little too powerful for a younger for a younger team like Arizona. Even and for it, even for a team, uh, and Larry, give me one second there, but even yeah. even for a team. Uh, like Seattle, uh, you know, whose whose defense has been struggling all season. Uh, they've been missing their running game the last few weeks, and it was great to have Carlos Hyde back. Chris Carson um, is actually due back soon. 
Um, the Seahawks, in fact, and, and they had mentioned this on the broadcast last night, have the easiest remaining schedule um, in the NFL. Five of their final six games are against under 500 teams. Uh, next week they play the Eagles. Then they've got the Giants, the Jets, uh, the Washington football team before they finish the year um, against the Rams and the 49ers. So it seems like the carpet, Larry, um, and I'm not sure if the Seahawks are your favorite right now to win the NFC West, but it seems like the carpet has really been laid out in front of them. Well, I mean, I was going to say the remaining games that Seattle had. So you've already done that for me. I believe they have the easiest schedule in the division um, the rest of the way. And, you know, I know that uh, Arizona was just coming off of the uh, the Hale-Murray um, game on Sunday. They had the short week and that Seattle may have caught Arizona at the right time. But Seattle also has the benefit of a schedule that they can take advantage of. Um, you know, uh, Arizona also has uh, some tough games. Uh, I just want to take a peek at the Rams schedule for you because um, I know somebody had also uh, mentioned them. Uh, the L the Rams remaining schedule is, I you know, it's actually kind of tough. They, they do have Tampa and yeah, right. They have San Francisco. They still have to play Arizona twice and they have to play Seattle again. And yeah, right. He, they do have to play New England. We don't know what New England will be by uh, week 14 because we don't know what kind of team New England actually is. Um, we know they're not the same team that they were, but we know they're not, it's not like playing the Jets um, or, or anything like that. So, you know, the Rams do have a tougher schedule. Um, so we'll see what they do on Monday night against Brady, in which uh, we'll get to later. But uh, that's my game of the week. Uh, coming up it's funny larry how you mentioned that we just got a comment from uh, from tom here tom casey who says um it's the rams division to lose and then to add to that he actually mentions that seattle hasn't looked good in weeks they caught arizona on a week coming off a hail mary so tom thank you very much uh for the comments casey let's let's shift gears to here to you a little bit um yeah Arizona, I mean, look, they, they've gotten some questions defensively. It was nice to see Isaiah Simmons, their first-round draft pick out of Clemson, finally have his first real good game last night. It seems like he was all over the field. Um, they also don't have a very easy finish either. They still got to play the Patriots. They got two games left with the Rams. So it seems like in regards to the NFC West, we, we may not find out a winner till Week 17 at this point. That is very true, uh, Ian. And, and I was going to say that with this whole logjam that we have at the top of the West – you just want to fast forward to week 16 already because in week 16 and week 17 is the NFL does this with their scheduling. It's all in division the last two weeks, and it's going to cannibalize that entire division. Uh, so you can say that it's the Rams division lose. Seattle hasn't looked that great. I mean, that may be the case. They're not the strongest defensive team in the world, but they go through the NFC East for the rest of the division. And the <laughs> NFC East is the weakest division in football. And I, they play the Jets as well, do they not? Uh, yeah, yeah they, they still have they have yeah. the Jets in three weeks at home. So. I mean, they're cruising until that week 16. The, the question will become, can they provide enough separation in those weeks? You have to win out against the NFC East, beat the Jets, and hope that the Rams at that point do they do they struggle against a strong offensive team in Tampa Bay? That tough game against the Cardinals again. They have another interdivision game. Uh, it's going to be really tough for the Rams to hang tight in that division. We'll learn a lot on Monday, I think, from their matchup with the Buccaneers. But the strength of schedule is something that really comes into play in football more so than any other sport. Uh, so I think that it's going to be really tough for the Rams. I don't think it's impossible. 
but I do think it's the Seattle Seahawks, if only by virtue of Roger Goodell and his uh, series of Excel spreadsheet crunchers. Yeah. Case, was, go ahead, Larry. It's, it's very likely that uh, Arizona and L.A. Week 17 could be Sunday Night Football. Um, you know, because they, they always flex that last game in with playoff implications. It could be Dolphins, Bills. They could be playing for the division in Week 17. But you also got Arizona and L.A. That's probably going to be a game to watch. Casey, I think your point is is very valid in respect to uh, that Jared Goff. I mean, that's the question mark. Uh, he has not been the same quarterback that we saw since the Super Bowl two years ago. Um, I think Rams fans and, and, and the entire National Football League are, are, is waiting uh, for Jared Goff when he had weapons like Cooper Cup and um, and Robert Woods and, and Tyler Higbee and to, to, to utilize those weapons, um, you know, the right way. So, yeah, I think a lot's going to come down to – uh, Monday night's game against uh, Tampa Bay. Uh, I want to play a little buy or sell here with you guys before we uh, shift to our next topic here in the NFL. Rob, we're going to start with you, and I see you rubbing your hands together. Buy or sell. Buy or sell. Uh, do all three teams make the playoffs, Rob? Buy or sell in the NFC West? Oh, that's a close one. I, and you know what? Just based on the way everything else is going record-wise, I have. To, I think I got to buy here. I got to buy into this. I, I, this division is so competitive. It is so phenomenal to watch it is it is literally the best football you can get and thank god i have nfl red zone so i can at least catch some of these games for when they're not the national game of the week because mm -hmm. i get stuck with all these crappy local games on on fox and cbs like the jets and the giants <laughs> but, but nonetheless I do think it's very possible for all three to sneak in right now because you, you look around. The, NF the NFC East is literally going to have one team in there, and they're going to unfairly be a four seed, which is just ridiculous. But there's nothing you can do about it. That's the rules right now. It, I, I do wonder if that this season in the NFCs will make them reconsider that those rules, but that's a discussion for another time. But, yes, I, and then you look at the NFC North, and it's just like the Bears are finally – plummeting i should say back to earth you know fast way so the the vikings are on an up climb but the question will become was is there enough time left for them because they started out so weak but now that they're finally getting their groove back it's going to be close but it's very difficult to say i mean the packers are probably looking pretty comfortable right about now feeling pretty comfortable in the nfc north and then you look at the nfc south and you, you look at something like – you look at – you see the race with the Saints, but now we'll get to poor Drew Brees in a, in a few minutes. The Bucks are hanging in there. So, But right now, these three teams are have the best records. So right now, all three would be making the playoffs if the playoffs started now. So I think it's very safe to say without the division play, because obviously they're going to beat each other up a little bit, but if they can win their games outside of the division – especially someone like Seattle and, the, and others who do still have to go through some of the NFC East. It's going to be a tight race, but yes, they can all easily get in. As Rob DeLuca decides to jump through every division in the NFC and uh, give us a full picture, I should now ask him about the AFC. But uh, Casey, your thoughts, buy or sell on all three teams in the NFC West um, making the playoffs? I'll buy that if only just because the alternative is buying the Chicago Bears. And who would want to do that right now? I, I, I don't think Mrs. Foles wants to buy the Chicago Bears right now. I, it's, I, I, can, I can't see them making the leapfrog. I can't see the Minnesota Vikings making the leapfrog. I mean, it's 
I find it very hard to believe that they that they'll that they'll lose that grip. Granted, Arizona has been slipping a little bit, but I mean, again, the goal is to outplay the Bears. When you're being pursued by like a monster and you're with your friend, you don't have to outrun the monster. You just have to outrun your friend and let your friend get devoured. So that's that's all the Cardinals have to do at this point. Larry, buy yourself. Um you know what? I, I don't know if I'm going to buy it yet because I don't know what's going to happen in the NFC South because you have uh, the, you know, Tampa Bay, which now has the complete opening to get in there because of Drew Brees' injury. And I know you said that we, we are going to get to that. But if you look at the Saints remaining schedule, it is not that difficult. And if they can survive, I think they have the opportunity to take one of those wild cards. You know, they still have to play Atlanta twice. They have uh, Denver, uh, Philadelphia. Um, but then those final three games, if you can be healthy for 15, 16, and 17 against Kansas City, Minnesota, and Carolina, then I would say uh, the Saints have a shot. If they're going to miss Drew Brees for, for the entire season and, you know, this Winston and, uh, and Hill uh, combination doesn't work, well, then, yeah, I'll buy on all three. Yeah, I think the question with Carolina is, and I, and I think that they're even a fringe playoff team if, if Christian McCaffrey is healthy. Because um, we, we certainly – My fantasy see, team wants him. But yeah. want him back <laughs> you know, we, we certainly are seeing the, the struggles without him. And uh, Teddy Bridgewater is really making the most out of his opportunities. And even though I picked on him early in the season, I think Matt Rule is doing a good job keeping that team prepared in what is a division with uh, two teams at the top that are the real cream of the crop – I'm um, in the NFC South. Let's let's keep it, gentlemen. Then with the NFC South, and and the news for Breeze is obviously not good. Um, it's great to see all the prayers and and all and all the great comments on social media in support of him. Um, he left the game at halftime last week against the 49ers. Did not return. Uh, went for an X-ray and revealed fractured ribs and a collapsed lung on his right side, which is his throwing side. Um, the initial report was that maybe he'd be back in two weeks, um, and, and they would reevaluate. Um, it appears that there is no timetable and understandably so for his return. Um, I think the way we've got to look at this gentleman is that this isn't mending a broken bone. Um, these are long, these are your organs that are now compromised, excuse me, compromised. Um, he's going to be 42 this January. So uh, we know that he's a first ballot hall of famer. I don't think anybody would blame him, even if he doesn't go out the way Peyton Manning uh, did um, to, to just step away for, for health purposes. But, uh, Rob, let's start with you. Uh, what does it look like going forward right now for Drew Brees? It's it's real tough. I mean, they this guy is a football legend. He's got, a, he's got his ring. He gave the city of New Orleans a, a great celebration. And he's one of the all-time greats. He's, he's right up there. You can, you'll never convince me otherwise that he's not arguably – Top five. You're not going to convince me. Top three, even. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You can't convince me otherwise. And it's just real tough to see these legends go out the wrong way from a fan perspective. I should say, you never, you never want to go out on on an injury that's out of your control. It's, it's, it's real sad to see. It's tough. And I, I really do hope that because I'm, I'll be shocked if he's back this season. I really will because this is very serious, especially for someone who's this old. But for anyone, really, we're talking about vital organs here that are now compromised. But, yeah, exactly. Precisely, Casey. It, he'll, he's fine. 
But, <laughs> but no, in, all, in, all, in all seriousness, I would not mind Drew Brees coming back for one more year, going out the right way. Because to me, the right way for a legend to go out is playing your final game, regardless of what your team does. In front of your fans, regular season, your final game, with a crowd going nuts. So I would love to see him back in 2021 and go out the way he came in, which was pretty much screaming. Larry, I'm going to age ourselves here a little bit. Uh, when Drew Brees came into the league with the San Diego Chargers, uh, we were 16 years old in, in 2000. And uh, we've, we've watched him progress as a uh, growing up as a Notre Dame fan. I, uh, had, I would hate having to play Purdue for four years. Cause that meant I had to watch Drew Brees put up 500 yards and five touchdowns, uh, you know, when uh, Purdue was rocking Notre Dame, but, um, Larry, we, we, we've seen him win a Super Bowl. Uh, everybody here has seen him win a Super Bowl, but we, we saw him really. We remember the beginning of his career. Um, what's your take right now on the news surrounding Drew Brees? Because it's just so unfortunate. It, it is unfortunate. It is, it is heartbreaking because like Rob said, you know, you want to go out on top, especially a guy who is a first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, he, he's a guy you look back and go, wow, San Diego Chargers moved on from Drew Brees for Philip Rivers. <laughs> it's kind of funny, right? Um and, you know, remember, Larry, the reason that they moved on from Drew Brees was because in the last game of the season before he actually was supposed to be dealt not to the Saints, but to Miami, who was actually coached trivia question uh, by Nick Saban at the time um, and said he did not want Drew Brees. Um, everybody thought that Drew Brees was was never going to make the full recovery. I guess guess who's laughing last right now? The Chargers and the Dolphins, I'm sure, would have loved to have had Drew Brees for 20 years. But please continue. Of course. Um, and he deserves to go out on top. He deserves to be in front of his fans and to play one final season. But here's the issue. In the NFL, in a position such as quarterback, the most important position on the field, if you are not able to play to the same caliber, how can a team get, basically give up on a season to let someone, you know, ride out into the sunset? That's the only difficulty. Um, that we may have uh, with Drew Brees if he is not performing at the same level to bring this team to the promised land in 2021. Casey, I, I hate to ask this question, but I think we, we certainly have to at this point. We, we have to think now from a football perspective, how are things going to look uh, going forward uh, for the New Orleans Saints? The, the Saints have come out and announced not Jameis Winston, but Taysom Hill is actually going to start this Sunday against the Falcons. Uh, I'm sure at some point we're going to see Jameis Winston. Granted, he's a year removed from a 30-touchdown, 30-interception season, so we know the arm strength is certainly there, and he filled in in the second half in what really became a runaway uh, against the 49ers last week. Um, what's your take on really going forward? Um, obviously, I want your take on, on your feelings on Drew Brees, but also what is your take going forward on the Saints and the NFC South? Well, the uh, the news about Drew Brees is fantastic for Saquon Solo, my fantasy team, which Tyson Hill still has tight end eligibility on ESPN. So we're passing <laughs> in on those points, baby. Uh, in the in the interest of taste, oh. insensitively, Casey Bryant. <laughs> That is the Casey Bryant I know and love. <laughs> All the best to Drew Brees. Yeah, yeah, get better soon. Uh, Drew Brees is is going to come back, if only just because there's not an injury in football that you can't come back from. Alex Smith is proof of that. Alex Smith came back onto the football field after an arduous recovery process, and it's Drew Brees that we're talking about here. I have no doubt that he's going to come back. Uh, the quality remains to be seen, whether it's one farewell game or he gets an entire season at some point. 
I, it's up in the air, but I have no doubt that he's going to come back. It's just that kind of optimism always surrounds Drew Brees wherever he goes. And along that same line, optimism should still follow the New Orleans Saints because they, let's be honest, they were 5-0 and last year with Teddy Bridgewater. The foundation has already been laid for the Saints team to succeed without Drew Brees. So whether it's Hill under center, whether it's Winston under center, I think that you have two capable candidates to step in and replace Drew Brees. And the Saints were not Drew Brees. The Saints were Drew Brees in an offense with Kamara, in an offense with Thomas. They have such a, a arsenal of weapons that it was never just the quarterback that made things work. Certainly helped, but it wasn't the Drew Brees show. And that's what makes the Saints such a strong team that will continue to succeed with or without number nine. We've reached uh, just a minute after 718, and we certainly wanted to make sure we got to our 718 sports update, and we will get back uh, to football news because we certainly have plenty of it uh, with just about 40 minutes left to go in this show. But um, the NCAA did announce that the 2021 NCAA Division One tournament um, for the college basketball fans out there, I know I'm one, I'm Rob certainly one, uh, that it's going, it is going to be held, but it's going to be held in a bubble-like atmosphere in Indianapolis. Um, it's certainly understandable that the NCAA, which is, who's, which is, whose offices, um, are based in the metropolitan Indianapolis area, uh, that that's where they would hold them. Um, locations and facilities are still being determined as to how they're going to work that out. I'm sure we'll see places like Bankers Life Fieldhouse, um, maybe the arena on, on Butler's campus, places like that will certainly see be utilized. Um, and in addition, obviously with the, uh, to give the student athletes the experience, I'm sure we might see a Lucas Oil Fieldhouse used this year as a uh, spot for the Final Four. But uh, we saw the bubble-like atmosphere work for the NHL. We saw it work for the NBA. Um, just one thing is, is for certain, and I'm sure the three other gentlemen on this uh, broadcast with me on this podcast can agree that the NCAA is in dire need of making sure that the NCAA tournament goes off without a hitch. There's just way too much money um, involved in that TV deal and the amount of money that they lost. Uh, between uh, the basketball tournament, the men's and women's college world series, the lacrosse championships and so on and so forth. It's just a lot of money that they can't afford to lose right now in, uh, in 2020, 2021, when uh, the, the economy is just so bad right now. But so that's the announcement from the NCAA that, <clears throat> excuse me, that the uh, 2021 NCAA tournament will be held um, in the surrounding Indianapolis area. Uh, let's shift over now, maybe uh, back to some football here. And, uh, the New York football giants, uh, Daniel Jones, uh, single-handedly had the best game, and I don't think there's any arguing it, uh, the best game of his career. Um, a horrific eight-game losing streak against the Eagles, uh, a losing streak that dated back, dates back to 2016, is now over. 27-17 uh, was the final. Daniel Jones, 21-28, 244 passing yards, 64 rushing yards, 34 of them came on a touchdown run, one where he did not slip and fall at the five-yard line. And then what makes it even better is the fact that Daniel Jones had no turnovers um, and the second best pro football focus rating of any quarterback in the National Football League in Week 10. Um, Rob, let's start with you, my fellow Giants fan on this show. Has this win given the Giants the momentum that they need to possibly win the division? Well, first and foremost, finally, finally it's over. The awful losing streak to the worst football team in the history of existence, maybe in all of sports. I don't know. But uh, that felt so good to say. It's uh, it's unfortunate our Joey Jarzenka could not be here tonight, who is our resident Eagles fan. And, oh, I would have loved to have loaded on him tonight. Is that why he's not here? He ducked maybe, out. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> 
But none, but uh, no, nonetheless, Daniel Jones, phenomenal game. Just and, and to answer your question, Ian, this was pretty big for the New York Giants. This was really big. This put them back in the NFC East playoff race. As sad as it is to say, the three and seven New York Football Giants are now just a half a game away from overtaking first place in this god-awful division, we are potentially back to talking about the playoffs, which I really didn't think we were going to do three weeks ago. We were talking about Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields. All of a sudden, we're talking possible playoffs. We're talking Super Bowl! The the Giants have gone down now for – Number two, uh, from the number two overall draft pick in the 2021 NFL draft, now to number eight, um, actually in the draft order. And I just have to obviously include this comment from Joey, who's obviously watching. Um, <laughs> from, uh, from Joey Jarzenka, he obviously how he feels uh, after his Philadelphia Eagles lost to uh, New York Giants. Bring the salt. Uh, uh, 27 to 17. And yeah, the Giants are, as we say, Casey, are a respectable. Uh, three and seven, and even with the Eagles right now in the win column, the Eagles have the Browns coming up. They're going to travel to Cleveland and play the Browns. The The Giants are on a bye. Um, what's your take right now on this absolutely porous division, which the Giants now have a shot to win? My initial take is uh, revisionist history, which is can you imagine if the Giants pulled out just one, just <laughs> one of those seven games that they completely butchered in the fourth quarter? Just one, and they'd be sitting pretty atop the division, which is ludicrous to think. Uh, What's going to save the New York football giants down the stretch is that there are divisional opponents have kind of an equally tough schedule, right? The Eagles play the Cleveland Browns, as you mentioned this week, not a cakewalk. The Cowboys have to deal with the Vikings, not a cakewalk. The the, uh, Washington football team, has to deal with down the stretch uh, the, the 49ers who are still tough. The this week. So that's not an easy uh, game either. Yeah. So the Giants have a bye, and which A, gives them an opportunity to recover from this inadvertent uh, COVID string that they've run into. But also they come back and play the Bengals. And the Bengals are not a very strong team. That gives them a chance to maybe get a leg up and build some confidence heading into that all-important matchup, the game of the, of the uh, country, four o'clock on, on December 6th against the Seahawks. So it's going to be a really, the pressure I think is on all of the other teams in the division to not blow it. Because mm-hmm. the Giants, no one counted them in, in the division race. The pressure is entirely now on the Eagles and Cowboys to live up to the expectations that they had because no one thought that the Cowboys would be two and seven. No one thought that the Eagles would be three, five and one. It's entirely the pressure on them to succeed, not the Giants. The Giants are not failing. It's not the other way around. It's That's all the Giants are trying to do, not fail. The Eagles and Cowboys have been trying to succeed, and that's the difference. The Giants can sneak their way in that way. Will it happen? I don't know. Could be. Who's to say? <laughs> you hate to see it, Joey. <laughs> you really do. Oh, boy, it looks like we've uh... – Ian's connection may have gone a little soft there. Hey, Larry. Ladder, he, he's, he's in Rictus. Larry, why don't you give us your thoughts on what you saw from the Giants this past week? And, and La- Larry's the, the, the show is crumbling right now. <laughs> <laughs> the show is crumbling, and I don't know. Oh, God, and Ian has dropped out of the show. Oh, I do no. have a graphic. This is – 
unprecedented. Can we get that comment, yeah. Rob? You're fired after the show. <laughs> Zach, I, fired. I, at this point, all right. Look, let's try to go. Ian, how, or I'm sorry, Larry. How is your yep. audio? Are you back? Let's hear you. Uh, I'm, all right, I'm back. Right, you got me. There you are. Yeah, you're good. All right. So yeah, right. Larry, why don't you uh, talk to us a little bit about those New York Football Giants? What you saw this past weekend, and what is the hope? What is the hope for the, the division? I guess at this rate. Listen, I, right? It's like you said. Who would have thought the Giants would be in the conversation for winning this division? It really shows um, how weak the division is. How bad Carson Wentz has been, uh, what the injury um, to Dak has done for the Dallas Cowboys. But you know what? It opens the door for the Giants. I mean, the Giants, they, they will have a tough stretch. They got to take care of business against Cincinnati because you got Seattle, you have Arizona, you know, you have the Cleveland Browns, who I think would be a tough game. And then after that, you got Baltimore. So, you, you know, you're going to get a tough stretch. But on top of that, the Philadelphia Eagles aren't proving that. Don't worry, we're going to beat uh, we're going to beat our teams too. I mean, Philadelphia has has not played well. Um, I have not liked what I've seen out of out of Carson once. I got him in a fantasy league, and it's it's killing me. Uh, sorry, Joe. Um, but you know, uh, they're starting to get it together. If they can start to click, anything can happen once you get in. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, but yeah, let's continue on the Giants here. Little uh, personnel change news, not just the COVID outbreak, but the other, just, uh, I believe it was yesterday, Giants offensive line coach Mark Colombo was given the boot. After two straight wins, the Giants have replaced him with, with, with former Colts offensive line, Colts offensive line coach Dave DiGiulimo. So this will be really interesting to see how the offensive line, who seemed like they were having a little bit of upwards in performance, deal with a brand new coach. Casey, are you surprised by this midseason move? Well, if you're going to believe the rumors, he wasn't just given the boot. He was given these hands. <laughs> there was apparently some fisticuffs between him and Joe Judge, if you're going to believe uh, some of the rumors coming out of Giants camp. Uh, that is kind of surprising that they would make make a move, but let's not. But again, let's get back to the original point, which is that the Giants are not necessarily succeeding; they're not failing. So you can say that the Giants have been playing relatively well. They are still, you know, three and seven or two and seven, whatever the record is, three and seven. Uh, so it's not like they were a great football team yet. They are still growing, and Joe Judge is in his first year as head coach. He's still trying to find out who he works well with in addition to the roster. So if he felt that a change was made, he wanted to bring in the Colts coach and uh, who has a great offensive line coach resume under his belt. He want, That's his guy. He wants to bring in his guy. And the, the reports are that Colombo objected uh, out of ego. You know, that, that's, that's what the rumor is, that he didn't want to be kind of cast aside. He wanted to be the offensive line coach. They butted heads, and, and that is the story that is being spun. Uh, whether or not they went seven or eight rounds uh, on Dazon is, it remains to be seen. Was Michael Buffer there? We can't confirm. Uh, but that is, that is the trend. So it's not like the Giants are going to be completely uh, upended by this move. Uh, I think it's just a matter of Joe Judge trying to find the right ingredients to the soup of success for his team. Larry, 
this is obviously one of the weaker lines that DiGiulio is going to be working with compared to his Colts days. Do you do you think this will? Do you, what what challenges do you see that he'll face with what is a much more notable weaker line than what he's used to from his Colts days? Yeah, I mean, look, I I understand you bring in new leadership and maybe you can get some more out of these uh, players, but you know these players are also only as good as the as the talent allows. So you know, uh, it's it, it's pretty difficult to bring in uh, a guy. Uh, you know, but then say, here, here's all you have to work with. So will we get some improvement? I think we will. Uh, but I don't know if we're going to get enough where you turn around and say, okay, it's been completely revamped and they're a new, uh, you know, they're a new line. Hey, no, no question. No question about that. Yeah. There's still many obstacles for this offensive line to face, especially when one goes down with an injury, another goes down with COVID. And then mm-hmm. now about three of them have COVID. So this, it couldn't be a better time for the, Giants bye week, and our host, Ian Schreier, has returned from the grave. Thank you. Thank you. So Ian, much, welcome guys. to the show. Yeah, yeah, I, I appreciate that, Larry. Thank you so much. Sorry, guys. It appeared my internet had dropped out, and uh, unfortunately, uh, I didn't get a chance to jump in with you guys, but it appears from the uh, conversation that uh, the discussion surrounded uh, the um, entanglement, so to speak, between Joe Judge and uh, the offensive line coach, uh, Mark Colombo. So, uh, um, I didn't know if there was more to add. I just think from from my personal opinion, based on the culture, and 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 I kind of leave this as an open question to the three of you, um, it, it kind of feels like what Judge is trying to create there, um, it has a very Tom Coughlin-like feel. This isn't what um, we've we've seen from coaches like Ben McAdoo and, and Pat Shermer. There's just an accountability factor. And I know that the Bill Belichick coaching tree has not had its – fair share of good history recently um, with respect to uh, Romeo Cornell, Charlie Weiss, Josh McDaniels. Um, obviously, Josh McDaniels is going to get another opportunity, but we're seeing guys now like Joe Judge, Brian Flores in Miami, Mike Vrabel um, in Tennessee who are starting to um, turn around uh, the Bill Belichick coaching tree. But getting back on point here, um, does it – I guess, Rob, I guess we'll start with you. Does it feel a little bit like – this has a little bit of a Tom Coughlin feel from an accountability and a mutual respect approach. It's I'm not, I'm not going to go there just because Tom Coughlin to me is incomparable in terms of Giants coaches and Joe Judge has been here for ten games. But look, in ten I love what I've seen from Joe Judge in ten games than I did in was it three years of Pat Shermer. Or uh, two, two years, I don't even knew. Yeah, it two felt, two, felt, two, felt, two felt like three. Years. And then, and then three years of Ben McAdoo. I've already liked what I've seen more from Joe Judge in ten games of that than I did in the time with Ben McAdoo and Pat Shermer put together. So he's cer- he's certainly already above them in just ten games, and we're three and seven. So let let's just say let's just put that into perspective that we can be three and seven, and I still love the coach and what he's doing, the culture he's bringing in more than what I saw from the last five years. I think what it comes down to, and and you said it best there, is what we saw from Joe Judge out of training camp and uh, and during the preseason was that we saw that he knew when he had to be a begrudging coach and we knew when he had to be hard on them, but we also saw the video of him 
uh, you know, with, with the uh, them hosing down the field to create mud for them to slide and try to recover fumbles. And Joe Judge got right back in there and just created culture. It just has that kind of feel that things are turning around for the Giants, Casey. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's I, I, I want to liken it to other New York sports franchises. You know, people want to see accountability. You had mentioned Tom Coughlin, you know, he's not Tom Coughlin yet, but that's what he can strive to be. You know, when when Phil Jackson left the Knicks, the Knicks wanted stability. They haven't gotten it yet. They hope that Tom Thibodeau can be that guy, but you want a culture change. When Brody Van Wagenen and the Wilpons left the Mets, Met fans wanted stability. They wanted accountability, and that's what they appear to be getting in the Alderson and Cohen regime. With Pat Shermer out the door and the future of Dave Gettleman in question, you know, people want accountability, which hasn't been seen since the end of the Coughlin era. And Joe Judge is trying to instill that. And part of that is because he did come from the Belichick regime. You know, Bill Belichick is a guy who doesn't take no crap. You know, it's uh, while it hasn't translated to great record-wise success, his coaches do kind of carry themselves the same kind of way. Uh, so it's him trying to instill what he's learned and impart it onto the Giants. I don't mind the move, especially not if it was as uh, raucous and distracting as the reports seem to be indicating that it was. Larry, your thoughts right now on it's only been 10 games, but it seems like Joe Judge is really taking control of that locker room. Absolutely. And Joe, and Joe Judge is a breath of fresh air when you compare him to uh, Shermer and McAdoo. Um, right. Uh, Tom Coughlin was uh, a great coach and he'll be remembered, uh, you know, for uh, those Super Bowls uh, in New York. Um, but since then, um, there has been no stability at all uh, in the head coaching position for the Giants. And so having uh, Joe Judge, even though it's only been 10 games, not with a great roster, you know, you're obviously missing your, your, your feature back. Um, which, which definitely hurts them. And you have a young quarterback who's trying to learn with, you know, not the great, not the best receiving core. Um, but with all that said, I got to give Joe Judge credit. And um, I think he might be here for a long time. Let's shift gears again here, guys. Stay in uh, in the football realm. But uh, let's do a little NFL buy or sell. And there's really only one team right now I want to focus on, maybe two. But the first one I want to focus on is it's the only team in the league right now that's still undefeated, and that team is the Pittsburgh Steelers. Um, a couple weeks ago, we had Jim Wexel on from the Steel City Insider here on the Primetime Rundown uh, to give us his insight into how he sees the, the rest of the Steelers season going at that point, and that was following uh, the win over the Ravens. Um, and obviously we discussed uh, last week on the show uh, what had gone down in regards to the game with the Cowboys, but they are 9-0, the Steelers, for the first time in their history, and this goes even back to uh, the Steel Curtain teams of the 70s. Uh, we're just past the halfway point of the season. Uh, Larry, let's start with you here. Um, do the 2007 Patriots, in your opinion, have possible company? Could even the 72 Dolphins have company at this point? Oh, man, it it is possible because every time um... – you think Ben Roethlisberger is done. He's been able to uh, come through. I mean, th the thing for them has been that he has stayed healthy, right? Normally by this time in a season, Roethlisberger is either missing time or is about to start missing time. So if, if Big Ben can stay healthy with that receiving core, uh, they have a shot. I mean, really, when you look at the schedule, they have, what, three tough games Left on the schedule, they have the Baltimore Ravens, they have the Buffalo Bills, and they have Indianapolis. Outside of that, every other game should be winnable uh, 
for them, you know, and I know Buffalo is a team, you know, uh, are they for real? Um, you know, we'll, we'll definitely find out in week 14 when they play each other, but you know, the Steelers, um, they, they had missed uh, Deontay Johnson for uh, a number of games. And you know what? That's okay because they just continued to keep moving the chains. Um, and it could be something special uh, in Pittsburgh. Um, I'm not a big Steelers fan, so I hope not. But, um, you know, they're, they're obviously going to be a beast uh, in the AFC playoff picture. So uh, so I guess to assume, Larry, you're you're a buy right now on a possible Steelers 16-0? Yeah, yes, I, I, I am a buy on, on it's possible. I'd like to see what they do with Baltimore the second time in Week 12. I think it's interesting, Larry, how you mentioned there. Oh, boy. Uh, that Week 16 <laughs> game against the Indianapolis Colts. Uh, you know, we could certainly see a uh, a flex to a Sunday night game for a game between uh, two teams that are thriving right now in the AFC. Casey, buy or sell right now on a Steelers team possibly going 16-0? and I'm going to sell that notion, uh, if only just because I think the Steelers haven't shown me that they're dominant yet. When you think 16-0, and you think of dominance, right? The, the perfect Dolphins team. And I go, I go back to the 2007 Patriots as well. The 2007 Patriots didn't experience a scare of losing their perfect season until Week 17 against the New York Football Giants, and they still won it because a good team finds its way to win, and they were able to ride that confidence and that kind of juggernaut potential all the way to the Super Bowl. Uh, and for this particular Steelers team, you know the Titans almost did it to them. You know the Texans almost did it to them. The Giants' opening week almost did it to them. So I'm not wholly convinced on the Steelers being a dominant team yet. I saw the, the graphic on uh, when the Steelers were playing the other night where it was the first time they started 8-0 in their franchise history. And I thought to myself, how is that possible? I feel like the Steelers predate the Civil War. And <laughs> never in their history have they started 8-0. That almost seems impossible. Uh, so do you feel like when you're watching the Steelers team, you're watching the best Steelers team in existence? I just don't see it. Rob, your take. Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to sell this Steelers I'm with I'm with Casey 100% on this. This is this is I'm not going to say a bad undefeated team cuz you're still undefeated, but this is not by any means a lethal force of an undefeated football team. Casey, you named all the teams that almost did it to the Steelers and ended that. Another one you you just you left out just a couple weeks ago, Dallas the little Ben DiNucci-led Dallas Cowboys nearly did it to the Steelers. But then, but then, of course, the Dallas Cowboys that we have seen this season showed up, beat themselves, and the Steelers went on to win. But, yeah, I'm, I don't know about this. Like, we'll see what happens in what is an, an obvious trap game on Sunday against Jacksonville. And it's on, it's on the road, no less. So there's going to be some fans, Jaguars fans in attendance. I'm sure there'll be some Steelers fans in attendance too. They travel well, but this is it's not exactly an easy schedule. They've got the Ravens. Luckily, they got the benefit of that at home on Thanksgiving. But Thanksgiving, Thursday night football, you don't know what you're going to get. So we'll, we will see what we see there. Then, of course, they have to travel to Buffalo a few weeks after that, and then it's at home against the Steelers, and then. Like everyone does in Week 17, you're playing your own division. And by that point, you think the division is won. 
you, you or you if you're the Steelers, you hope the division is won by that point to the point where you can rest your starters and you're not really expected to win that game. So it'll be it'll be close, but I, I'm selling. I don't think they make it. Clearly, those three games are the, are the biggest ones to mention uh, in two weeks. I, yes, I do agree with you, Rob, that, that the game at Jacksonville this week is certainly a trap game. Uh, the following week, Thanksgiving against the Ravens, as Larry and, and Rob both mentioned, huge. Uh, the other two games, Buffalo on a Sunday night, and then Indy very much a possibility. And if I can interrupt for a second, that's actually pretty key. If you think That's actually pretty key if you think about it. They've got this trap game on Sunday, and then it's a short week to play your toughest game of the season on yep. Thanksgiving. No, yeah, that's that's true. That's that that's a great point. So, and and the indie game, I think, is 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 just primed to be uh, that maybe that Saturday night game that we see around Christmas time in in week sixteen. And and I don't even want to in week fifteen. <clears throat> I don't even want to you know kind of play off uh, the Bengals as a possible spoiler because Joe Burrow really appears to be coming into his own a little bit. And uh, and we're seeing the uh, they're still they're still struggling defensively, but offensively they have they have the keys to put it together right now with uh, with Burrow, Mixon, and, and, and A.J. Green. Uh, the other piece that I really wanted to kind of uh, dive into with regards to buy, and se- buy or sell uh, are the Miami Dolphins. Uh, we discussed them last week as maybe that team that we could see that would rise through the playoff ranks and maybe find a way to sneak in. They win their fifth game in a row. They're now 6-3, and three, very much alive in the playoff picture, but they're doing it a lot off their defense. So, uh, Casey, let's start with you. Buy or sell on the Dolphins with them, A, making the playoffs, and B, can they actually keep up this pace defensively? I think that the Dolphins, I'll sell on them if only just because I think they're going to run into a wall. I think they're going to get a real – they'll keep their winning ways alive against Denver. They'll keep their winning ways alive against New York. And they even have an easy game against Cincinnati. They are going to run into a wall, mark the calendar December 13th against the Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs are going to expose the Dolphins for what I think they really are, which is a, you know, a very good team, not a great team. And then they have to ride out the season playing the Patriots, and the Patriots are always motivated to play their division opponents. And after the Raiders, they have the Bills. So I really think that the Dolphins have to, have to, have to extend that winning streak to eight before they get to the Chiefs. Otherwise, they have no chance of going very far, uh, if at all, in the playoffs. Uh, I'm not buying in on the Dolphins yet. I think that there is too much uh, magic right now surrounding the Tua and and surrounding their defense and not enough concrete, sustainable long-term football yet. I think that once they run into the Chiefs, you'll find out if they're a real football team or not. Rob, uh, last week when we were on the show, um, when – uh, Joey had asked us who you thought that team could be that maybe would would uh, surprise teams in the playoffs. You had mentioned the Cleveland Browns uh, last week. Uh, you know what what felt like could have been a letdown game for the Browns was really a letdown for the entire league that set the NFL back about thirty years in a ten to seven game between the Browns and Texans. Um, curious to get your thoughts now um, on the Dolphins by yourself. Yeah, I, this is close. This is tough because Casey kind of said it perfectly. That they absolutely have to win these three, these next three games. And here's the thing: two of them are tra- back-to-back traps after this weekend. Uh, the Jets and then the Bengals. That's back-to-back trap games that you have to go out and win. Because I do agree with Casey, it's going to be ugly on December thirteenth. Yeah, uh, yes, it's in Miami, but I don't think that matters at all. Not the way the Chiefs play football. They 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 went into Denver in the snow and took care of business. So it, it it's clear weather doesn't play a factor to them whatsoever. And it'll be 
it'll be ugly. So yes, I do believe the Dolphins need to be nine and three by the time they get to that that trap game. Otherwise, it's going to get be very difficult for them to make the, these playoffs. And and for that reason, I think. And then if if they do sneak in, what they'll do after that? Look, I do agree. Two is a little overhyped. K- Casey kind of took every thought I could have possibly said here because he's, he's just that good. That's all. That, there's nothing I can do about that. He's just that good. But yeah, look, two is young. He's obviously going to play in the playoff game. He's obviously going to be the guy in the playoff game should the Dolphins get there. But that's also going to show a reality check that, you know, sometimes – like they need they need time to grow. It's not that they're going to – it was bad. It's just – there's just – it's not enough experience. So, uh, overall, I do have to sell on the Dolphins. Larry, uh, you're a Jets fan, and uh, I, I have to ask. I mean, no one, I think, in this group sees the Dolphins more than you do as a Jets fan when the Dolphins play the Jets twice a year. Um, are you a little surprised um, from what you've seen from the Dolphins uh, nine games in and uh, how, for you, buy or sell on how they look going forward? You know, I, I am going to sell uh, on them for the reasons that, that Casey brought up. That's the analysis of the show is breaking down those week 14 through 17 with Miami. Um, but I mean, I think that Miami is a pretty good football team. And as a Jets fan who it has to deal with Adam Gase. At least I can take solace in the fact that teams can do well post Adam Gase. So I can't wait for that year to be good. I know if it works in Miami. God, I hope it works uh, in East Rutherford. But um, I think Miami is a pretty good team. But um, I think they're being carried by their defense. Uh, they're going to have a lot of tough games uh, coming up. And I don't think that uh, Tua has shown that he can put this team on his shoulders yet. But like Rob said, he's a rookie, hasn't played that many games. He's got to learn. I don't think this is a situation like the Jets had with um, Mark Sanchez uh, in the beginning of his career with back-to-back AFC championship championship games. I don't think that team um, is uh, here with the Dolphins. It's interesting for Miami because in the last three weeks, the Miami Dolphins have combined to score 91 points. 24 of those points have come off special teams and 34 of them have come off turnovers. So if that shows you why maybe to be a sell on the Dolphins, uh, to attack of a low in his first three starts has averaged only 170 yards, which is very, very typical uh, for a rookie quarterback in the National Football League, unless your name is Patrick Mahomes. But, uh, you know, you would see from a rookie quarterback a lot of possession throws. And and, and we've seen a lot of ability so far from Tua Tagovailoa that maybe we wouldn't have seen just yet the way he scrambles, the way he escapes the pocket. We're seeing more and more of that in the National Football League, uh, especially with respect to Tua and a, and a quarterback even not even so much like Russell Wilson, but like a Kyler Murray that just has that baseball type running ability to really get around the edge as fast as they do. And both Tua and, uh, and uh, Kyler have that ability. All right, let's, uh, let, let's shift gears again here. Um, let's get to the, uh, the part of the show that I know Rob and Casey have really been looking forward to talking. And uh, I, I know Rob mentioned at the start of the show, when we asked him about the devil's uniforms and uh, that Adidas never seems to hit the mark. I do miss Reebok as well. I'm not going to lie. Uh, I, I think I said at the top of the show that uh, um, as much as I love the Rangers jersey, uh, it would have already been in my mailbox if they weren't going on sale December 1st. So I am very much looking forward to getting my Artemi Panarin jersey when that day when that day comes. Um, so, Rob, we're going to start off with the uh, – we've got three Ranger fans in the room and one Devils fan. So let's start with the Devils fan in the room. You're a little outnumbered here. But... 
Hurts, but not surprising. <laughs> so uh, take me. Never fans get outnumbered in their own building. Why shouldn't you be surprised? <laughs> <laughs> that's what we get um, from. Moving, that's what we get for moving from moving to a ten minute train ride from Penn. <laughs> Um, trying to separate the animosity right now between the Ranger fan and the Devils fan in-house. But, uh, Rob, I'd like to know, I mean, there, there were so many great jerseys that were released the other day, and uh, there were also a few uh, bombs, to say the least. So I'm curious, who were your winners and losers of uh, – of a reverse retro in the NHL. All right, for, for my, my winners, I gotta, I'm going to start – I'm going to go straight forward. The Buffalo Sabres, I think, put out the best jersey out of everyone. That – look, just look – that is beautiful. They they Sabre swords. I, I, I like the clever idea of putting Buffalo on the stripe there at the bottom. This is – it's not too plain. Like every – there's not too much white because it is a white-based jersey. I'm glad they used up a lot of the space. It is gorgeous. I think it's the best jersey in the game. Another winner I had out there, I believe I said the Colorado Avalanche. The Avalanche had, you know, who doesn't love a good tribute to the Quebec Nordiques? That I, I personally would have enjoyed seeing the Avalanche logo on it instead just like I would have liked seeing the Hartford Whalers jersey throwback with the Hurricanes logo instead. I would have liked to have seen that. You see, I think that would look a lot cooler with her, with the Hurricanes logo in those colors. So well, yeah, be, one more winner. A little, and I know we're going to get to it with Casey because he's already repping the colors. You uh, you would be looking forward more to something like that with the Minnesota Wild. Yeah, yeah, and that's, and that's, my, that's my third winner. That's a, I love, love the tribute to the Mets to the North stars. This is, and the, the wild, lo it's the wild logo on it. So it's even better. An absolute home run there. Phenomenal job by these three teams. The losers. Well, let's start, let's start with uh, Ian's neck of the woods, but not his team. And that would be the New York Islanders. Ugh. Could you please, <laughs> please get more? Please get more. Please, I dare you to try to be more boring. This isn't anything new. They, this is literally their jersey now, unless the shade of blue is a little darker. It, it, it it's it. They went with the early two thousands navy. Yay, <laughs> yay! We can relive Mark Parrish days now, and you know vintage Miro Shatan. But oh, oh, this one's the worst. This I think is the biggest loser of them all, the Detroit Red Wings. This <laughs> is a mon. This is such a monstrosity that Ian had to get a picture of it this close up. <laughs> it is just that bad. It is a. I think it's white, but it's also covered in gray on the sleeves. It is. This isn't anything. And then finally, I'm not a fan of gray jerseys, really. And that's why the San Jose Sharks are my final loser here. Oh, see, I and, like San Jose. I like how they brought back the original logo for the Sharks. And, I, and trust I, me, I'm not trying to suck up here to Joey by saying that because oh, I know yeah, but the Sharks are his second favorite franchise in the National Hockey be better if it. I think it would be better if it wasn't a gray base because, yeah, like, look, the sleeves are cool. The sleeves are cool. Great. His logo's fine. Why is it gray though? Yep. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep. I mean, I, I just love the uh, the debate here, and uh, 
we did get a a comment from uh, from Joey um, in regards to the Islanders jersey, and I have to put it up there about him wanting to pull out his ah. Roberto Luongo uh, jersey. Um, and then after that, I, I believe Joey did like my Sharks comment. So the answer to that is Ian one, Rob zero. Um, in regards to the Sharks, circle. I mean, I wish the Sharks, salt, Joey. I, you know what? I I didn't like it when the Sharks. You know what? I did like their branding a little bit with the way that they changed up with the numbers and the names on the back. But I didn't like it when they basically turned the shark into a half a fish. I really didn't care for that when they when they rebranded. Casey, your winners and losers, sir. You know, I I think that well, first off, I I do want to show off that I am wearing a a North Stars uh, sweatshirt just to proving that I'm cool and hip. Uh, you know, it's. I, I appreciate the teams that went bonkers. You know, the the Anaheim Ducks bringing back Wild Wing is ludicrous. <laughs> I who who looked at this and said, "Yes, bring it back." I want the comic Sans font. I want the and I, and I hate to interject. Can, can you answer me a question? Sure. Of all the jerseys, you couldn't have gone with like the Korea Solani days with 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 the purple jersey and the mask that we saw in the Stanley Cup Finals in 03? I think the only reason why they didn't like go with like the the true jade and and white uh, and and egg and uh, teal jersey is because they kind of already did it last year with a black base. And granted, okay. that jersey didn't come out very good because it's a black base uh, and it's just trying to hop on the trend of black alts. And still made by Adidas, right? It's well, you know, that's a whole other discussion. But like, it's the craziness factor is what teams tried to lean into between that and the Arizona Coyotes. I throw that baby on up there. Oh, that's God. Oh, so bad. Yes. <laughs> Coyote Coyote. Yeah. So oh. the, the wildness for me, I mean, honestly, for me, the, the winners in terms of, because I am a jury Jersey purist at heart. So the winners to me are the ones that still look classically good. Uh, I just wanted to make sure that we got those images on the screen uh, sure. so that now you can't unsee them. Uh, in terms of my three winners, I'm going to start off with Montreal. Uh, Montreal's is a really classic look. I didn't think that I would like the inverted colors as much as I do, but uh, the blue and blanc and, and rouge all look really good. Uh, it's, it's a classic layout. Really love their design. Uh, second winner for me in the theme of Rob's trend that he wanted to see of uh, logos in different color schemes, Los Angeles Kings. The Kings combined, <clears throat> excuse me, combined their best colors of the 70s and 80s with their best logo, which is that of the 90s of the Wayne Gretzky era. And that's what this whole project should have been about, right? Is, is trying to mesh together your old designs to create something new, something evocative, something unique. And that's why, you know, something else that works is Calgary's improvement of Blasty. Blasty the horse, uh, is this is something that's taken that was a little silly when it came into the league in the 90s and 2000s and improving on it. You gave it the red and yellow uh, arm stripes, the black base. You, you're taking these little tweaks and fixing what was an older jersey. And it's exactly why, get, get the Islanders up on the screen. I'm, I'm, I'm not through ripping on this crappy, crappy design. It is almost as if the New York Islanders woke up the day that it was due. It's an, oh God, that's due today. Uh, 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 someone get the Photoshop paint bucket fill. Uh, change the blue, change the blue. All right, great. Whew, thank God. Uh, God forbid we bring back what the fans actually want in the, in the Gorton's Fisherman. God forbid that we do that, which... By the way, the fact that they're like now selling backpacks and hats and like and and, uh, and knit caps 
with the fisherman logo in the wake of this is just ultimate trolling. It's just twisting the knife even more. It's like, we know you wanted it. You're not going to get it. It's going to be great. Uh, so that's, that's first and foremost, laziness gets the Islanders on my losers list. Next loser, Columbus Blue Jackets. Do me a favor with your hand, cover up the logo. It's a Caps jersey. It's it's yeah. it's a Washington Capitals jersey that is posing as a Blue Jackets jersey. It is neither blue nor is it a jacket. It is not a Columbus Blue Blue Jackets jersey. It is ugly. The Blue Jackets have bar none the worst jersey history in the NHL, so this really shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, final loser for me, in keeping with Rob's trend of gray jerseys being the absolute woe, uh, Winnipeg Jets. Winnipeg. Ugh. What is this? What is who? It is technically a play on their old, their jersey when they were first in the league, but it's, I mean, not, it's not it's not done successfully at least. You have that logo, one of the most classic logos in hockey. Look at their winter classic jerseys from last year too, where it was the white with the navy and red trim. Oh, it was gorgeous. And what you did instead is make it the same color of just your pencil shavings. And I have this next to me. Forgive me for one moment, but now I have to go to prop comedy here. Do you know the closet? Do you remember these? Oh. <laughs> this, the Black Ice Collection from, from the NHL, was made. What year was this? This was uh, 2014. 2014, they decided to sell these where it's like these NHL jerseys, but with just black and gray outlines. It's awful. It looks dreadful. And that's what the Rangers went with this time. They, they didn't bring back the Black Ice jersey. They instead listened to their fans, unlike the Islanders, and brought back a still flawed, I still would have gone with the red sleeves, the, the true classic look. Uh, but that is still what the fans wanted. The fans got what they wanted. Uh, wait, wait, so wait, wait. I, I got a question. Please. What, why, why are the Rangers putting a New Jersey landmark on their jersey? Uh, because Ellis Island belongs to New York State. Read a book. Uh, hey, 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 I'm just saying, where is the Statue of Liberty located in the Hudson? On the Jersey side. Yeah, uh, but it is on New York property. How about the fact that in the midst of this debate, the New Jersey Devils tweeted out a picture of their jersey over the Rockefeller Christmas tree? Where's Rockefeller, Devils? Hey, it looks, better than, the it looks better than the tree does. That's true. <laughs> I, I I don't have a picture, gentlemen, of the Rockefeller Christmas tree. It certainly looks like one that could use a little bit of trimming. Oh, and, uh, and tree. You'll see it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But Casey, uh, Joey certainly had a comment for you. And uh, he said that uh, Luke called Mike Milbury and asked his thoughts about the reverse retro <laughs> show. <laughs> Who is calling Mike Milbury for any thoughts on anything now? I mean, I, <laughs> All right, Larry, why don't you uh, why don't you wrap this up for us? All right, so you've shown most of the pictures. So my uh, my wins were uh, the, the LA Kings and uh, the Montreal Canadiens. Um, so I I like them. I like with the Kings going to the uh, purple and gold, and I actually like how the Canadiens jerseys do look with them being predominantly blue. But speaking of teams that are being ironic, I think the Blues jersey being red is actually terrible. Um, <laughs> oh, it, it is. Don't yeah. you worry. It is awful. Even yeah, though I, did, I, I do like I, – I actually do miss uh, – I'm not going to lie to you, Larry. I do I do miss the the old Wayne Gretzky when he was there for about 
two seconds um, wearing that red jersey, you know, back in what, 1995 at that point when yeah. I faced uh, yeah. Iserman in the Red Wings and in, in the, in the, yeah, in the Western Conference playoffs. But <laughs> yeah, that, uh, yeah, those jerseys are attributed to one of the most iconic goals in, in, in playoffs. Oh, <laughs> That's what 2020 is done to the Christmas tree. It looks like it looks like the Rockefeller Christmas tree does need a little bit of love. I'm not gonna lie, but it needs to not be in 2020 is what it needs. <laughs> I didn't know Charlie Brown was in charge of decorating. <laughs> <this year. laughs> but you know, um, I yeah, Larry, I don't I don't disagree with you. That blues jersey is garbage. Dreadful. It looks like it, it's it it looked like a kindergartner's homework assignment. You had to color you had to color in with Crayola and the look at that. There it is. <laughs> and and then the kid mixed the numbers uh, up and did it backwards. Uh, you know. Uh, and that and, and I wasn't a fan of the uh, Maple Leafs jersey either. Talk no. about uninspired. Yeah. Oh yeah no no the Maple Leafs jersey what was that logo? Like what? What were they doing? Like I don't remember that ever being a logo. It just looks weird. You know what I would have liked to see for the Maple Leafs is if they took uh, the a, a retro logo or even their current logo and gave it the design of either the arenas or the St. Pat's, where it has like the crazy center stripe going on, where it's like multi-tiered. Uh, it's very old-fashioned. Love that uh, look. They wore a St. Pat's throwback, I think. At some look at it. Yeah. <laughs> I Looks like a poncho in this picture too. Yeah, not not yeah. for nothing. Why is it so bell shaped in this one? <laughs> I think what it is a little more is is the fact that uh, uh, Islander fans will certainly be uh, peeling on a John Tavares for wearing a jersey like that. So <laughs> yeah, that'll give Islanders. But yeah, out for our Islanders faithful that are watching, something, I'm pretty something more for them not to let go of. Yes, yes, uh, indeed. Yeah. Um, I, Larry, you got actually, I did not upload it tonight, but the other, but I I do want to give a little bit of credit. It was actually one of my favorite jerseys growing up, and and I know that that Joey's actually been from behind the scenes uploading a couple of these uh, jerseys for us. But um, ha, ha, was the uh, was the Florida Panthers? I love the fact that as a kid they wore the blue they wore the blue jerseys. It reminds me of the Scott Mellenby days, and um, even though I, I know uh, the Panthers can't attract more than about four the four people uh, on this podcast uh, to their home games, but. Um, it was great to see them uh, want to bring back the blue jerseys. I missed when they when they another team that I never wanted to rebrand, and uh, it was just great to see them uh, bring back the navy blues. Up uh, oh, and uh, speaking of, there we go. So uh, it's great the red on the shoulders, the blue with with, with the cat. I you know I, again I just did not like the yeah. rebrand. This just goes back to the '90s for me when when the Panthers made that run to the Stanley Cup final in '95. It's it, this is that was just pure heritage in every in every way because I'm not sure if we'll ever see. Uh, the Florida Panthers in a winter classic where they might bring back a jersey like that. So, uh, um, you know, maybe we might see them in a beach classic or something like that. But uh, even if the even if the Panthers survive. Um, all right, guys, let's uh, let's wrap this up. We do not talk a lot of NBA on this show, but tonight that is going to change a little bit. Um, it just seems like they're. We're, the NBA draft had just ended. We saw Obi Toppin from the University of Dayton get drafted by the Knicks last night. The Knicks faithful is absolutely thrilled with the draft pick. I really don't want to talk too much about the draft because we really don't know what we're going to get um, or what we're going to see out of these players, especially like a LaMelo Ball or a James Wiseman who did not really have collegiate careers. Uh, but the Rockets seem like they're ready to blow it up at this point. Uh, Robert Covington has been shipped off to Portland. Um, there's talk that uh, – they're two best players at this point now, uh, Russell Westbrook and James Harden, who they thought they were going to win a championship with, 
um, are now being shopped. Uh, rumors of Russell Westbrook to the Knicks, James Harden to the Nets. Um, that's going to be an absolute dumpster fire trying to combine him with Kyrie. But uh, let's start with the Knicks here. Um, do we feel, buy or sell, do we feel that, and uh, Casey, I'll start with you here. Do we feel that should the Knicks go down this route? We've seen this before. We saw it with Carmelo. Do we feel that the Knicks should be going down this route again of, of trying to grab a star player instead of trying to grow their talent from within? I think that they would be able to do it without giving up any of their precious assets like Mitch or or like Obi Toppin who just joined the organization. Will they know? You know, it's I think it's it's becoming apparent that they are not going to prioritize getting Russell Westbrook. The reason why I don't think it would be the worst idea in the world is because the New York Knicks desperately need a brand overhaul in terms of how they handle people. You know, every single superstar that has come to the New York Knicks in the last 10 years has had an unceremonious exit. Uh, you know, going back to Jeremy Lin, if you wanted to, Jeremy Lin had, had Lin sanity and then crazy contract negotiation gets shipped off. Mello, it was kind of turbulent at the end. You know, could he play with Lin? Could he play with Porzingis? You know, and then Porzingis, what happened there is, you know, he gets traded in the blink of an eye. Uh, and, Everything is just cast in depression and around Madison Square Garden. So getting a superstar like Russell Westbrook, who wouldn't make them a 60-win team, but would probably get them to 500 just by showing up, uh, proving that you can handle a star asset like that would go a long way towards attracting other people. That's, I think, kind of why Russell Westbrook shouldn't be immediately written off. And I don't think they should immediately write off Gordon Hayward either. I think that mm -hmm. at this point, the Knicks need to prove that they can handle having a real player on their roster. Well, the Celtics just announced uh, to your point, Casey, that they're not going to retain Gordon Hayward, which would be a, a phenomenal guard where the Knicks are severely lacking in the backcourt. Uh, Rob, your thoughts, uh, Russell Westbrook, fifth among active scorers in the NBA all time with 20,412. He ranks 43rd all time on the NBA's career scoring list. Uh, are the Knicks and Russell Westbrook a match by yourself? I'm going to sell it. Um, I think this is not the right move for this kind of Knicks team. This, this is a team, obviously, like, look, I can't, I can't sugarcoat it. They haven't been very good. They've been, they've been very, very, they've been all strands of not good the past few years. <laughs> but so I, I don't think bringing in a guy like Russell Westbrook, who obviously wants to win, is going to help this team who needs to continue their rebuild, which they had a phenomenal draft. The two players they drafted, absolutely what they needed. They filled their needs. Phenomenal job there. Trading their second, trading that other second-round pick was a little questionable, but in the end it wasn't the worst thing in the world. But I do think that this would be kind of detrimental to the Knicks and their progress forward. I believe this would – bring them a step backwards, especially if Russell Westbrook was the only thing that the Knicks did. Like, I think Casey was right in that they could look at someone like Gordon Hayward. If they got Russ, they'd also have to figure out a way to get him, which would also mean Jim Dolan, hey, buddy, can you spend a little money on us? Can you help us out here? But, you know, I yeah, I don't, I don't see it as a good fit. Well, after the draft, uh, we had already mentioned uh, the, the players in the backcourt right now for for the New York Knicks. Your top two point guards right now are Frank Nilakina and, and Dennis Smith, uh, both still very young. Dennis Smith, only 22. But uh, Larry, I mean, certainly getting a player like a Russell Westbrook would, would certainly transform the Knicks who uh, 
Uh, Rob used the words starting to progress. And I don't think those are words we've heard from the Knicks in a very long time. Absolutely. And Russell Westbrook is a great player and he would make an impact with the uh, Knicks. But you know what the problem may be? The New York Knicks themselves, right? They have been a cursed. I'm a Jets fan. The Knicks are up there with just being a cursed franchise of the last 20 years. You tell me, oh, the Knicks are going to get Russell Westbrook. I think to myself, oh, my God, he's going to get hurt. Um, You know, I I just assume that Westbrook will all of a sudden um, just not perform uh, to the same level. Um, I think it's important that the Knicks do bring somebody in so they can attract uh, free agents. Because the whole concept of, hey, you can play at Madison Square Garden, that doesn't bring free agents in anymore. Um, you know, you're not going to get an ownership change. You're not going to, you're likely not going to get a culture change um, with uh, the Knicks and, and uh, Madison Square Garden themselves. But um, they got to do something in order to bring other players, uh, you know, to New York. And um, especially when you got, uh, you know, the uh, Nets looking to bring uh, some players in too. And now you don't even have that, hey, you can play in New York because there's another team that can also attract uh, players to come in who actually are a little better. Just over 10 minutes past the top of the hour here on the Primetime Rundown. Ian Schreier, Rob DeLuca, Casey Bryant, Larry Pertakowitz here talking NBA. Uh, Larry made a perfect uh, mention there in regards to uh, Russell Westbrook. Uh, the Rockets are also appear to be shopping uh, James Harden and uh, Rob DeLuca and his homegrown New Jersey, I should say, Brooklyn Nets um, uh, are – at the top of the list of Harden's destinations of where he wants to go. Um, uh, for me, I kind of see it a little bit of, a, of an aging dumpster fire at this point for, for, for Brooklyn, just because we know that Kevin Durant can play with just about anybody on the court. But uh, Kyrie is more or less when he's healthy, the black hole of basketball. Uh, and James Harden, who also plays in the backcourt, would, would certainly create um, a lot of tension um, in that backcourt. I mean, we didn't see it a lot in Houston, but maybe we would with a, with a, personality uh like Kyrie's in Brooklyn so yes it would make them a contender um it feels a little bit like even though these guys are in their prime and and the other two were not it feels a little Pierce Garnett like based on maybe the players that would go back or the prospects or the draft picks that would go back to Houston but uh Rob your take on on a potential hardened trade Uh, this has my rigorous sell hard sell Sell. I, I will sell it 50 times over if I have to. I, I do not want this man in Brooklyn. I don't want him in Philly either, as that seems to be a top option for him. But I want him less in Brooklyn because it's going to cost the Nets way too much. This absolutely has shades of Pierce and Garnett all over again if this trade was to be pulled off. And I Praise be to Adrian Wojnarowski, the NBA insider that everyone loves on Twitter, recently on a radio show said that the Nets and the Rockets are actually now rather far apart on reaching an agreement for James Harden. It was the best news I could have heard because I do – that this Nets core right now, with just Kyrie and KD, already has conference finals potential. It is not a bad team. It is a great team. And here's the thing, it will cost all your depth to get James Harden here. And if so, and if you somehow do not get that ring from that Super 3, which will be dead in two years because all Kyrie is going to do is complain, it's a disaster. Sell. 
Casey and Larry, um, I, I want to throw a quick buy or sell at you guys. Uh, with or without James Harden, buy or sell at this point. Casey, we'll start with you. The Brooklyn Nets will be in the Eastern Conference Final in 2021. Buy or sell? I'd sell that because I think that a lot of it depends on what other teams do in the offseason. It's very clear that the Boston Celtics are not done wheeling and dealing. Uh, I think that the Boston Celtics can't be left out of any conversation for any trade or any free agent because if they're losing Hayward, there's a very good chance they do a sign and trade. They've been linked to Westbrook. They've been linked to Oladipo. They've been linked to Harden. So there's so many question marks where even if, if they were able to get someone to replace the likes of Gordon Hayward from a scoring position, if they flip Kemba Walker for someone, they're just always retooling, always trying to get it into that position to get over the top and back into the finals. They're in win-now mode. The Miami Heat are in win-now mode. They're in Drogic, who just re-signed, comes back healthy, comes back with Jimmy Buckets. That's a strong team. Philadelphia, they're linked to the James Harden discussion. So as it stands right now, as much as you would love to say, oh, they got KD and Kyrie. It's an automatic. They're, they're going to win. I still don't think it's a complete guarantee because you don't know what Kevin Durant you're going to get, and you don't know how long until Kyrie – unfortunately, you hate to say this about the guy, but you don't know how long until you start scratching your head about something he just said. Larry, buy or sell on the Nets in the Eastern Conference Final in 2020. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sell as well for the uh, same reasons. You know, you, you, uh, you know, Kevin Durant's been in the league for, for such a long time now. You don't know what player you'll have for, uh, you know, the – 2020 2021 season and um you know Kyrie is a uh, great ball player right but the minute he's not happy you know the things could change uh, on the court you know they're not guaranteed to get hardened there are other teams that are also trying to uh uh make a run so you know if they don't get him and somebody else does especially in the east it's it's going to cause more trouble for them Gentlemen, as we uh, wrap up here for the third week in a row, we each, uh, as hosts on this show, hand out our own kudos uh, to something related maybe to what we discussed or something completely unrelated. Um, Rob, let's start with you. All right. Yeah, I'm going to I'm gonna double down. I'm going to give my kudos to Daniel Jones. Look, Jones, the, the Giants fans, look, we're starting to lose faith in you. Myself included, it's there's been a lot of question marks surrounding turnovers and just being able to, you know, run run this team late in the game without a screw-up, and you finally delivered a flawless, flawless game against none other than the Philadelphia Eagles, a team we have been trying to beat for four years, and it just feels that much better that it came against a team like that the losing streak is finally over. Uh, the, you're now you have brought this team to a two-game winning streak. Keep it going. Nice game on Sunday. Enjoy the bye week, and let's hit it hard in week twelve. Larry, you know I I was torn on, on uh, my kudos, but you know what? I, the meth fan in me tells me I got to give it to Steve Cohen because you have the Robinson Cano story. Same old Mets. The fans didn't act that way. Cohen gets on Twitter. Fans are telling him, hey, what are we going to use the money for? Are we going to buy a bullpen cart? He goes, no, no, no. Bullpen carts can wait. We're investing it um, in the team. And, you know, Ian, I know you're not a huge uh, seven-line fan, but the seven-line tweet right after uh, Cano uh, got his suspension says it all. We basically got uh, Marcus Stroman and, like, $5 million for the Cano suspension. Casey. So, 
my kudos goes to Adam Fox this week. Adam Fox is defenseman for the New York Rangers. Uh, he announced earlier this week that he has personally raised almost $20,000 in the name of ALS Research. He has partnered with Tackle ALS and Massachusetts General Hospital. It's a tremendous cause. It's a cause that's very near and dear to my heart. Uh, so Foxy has quickly risen in the ranks of favorite Rangers in Madison Square Garden. Kudos to you, Adam, for all of the, all that you have done in the charity work in the name of ALS. My kudos tonight aren't so much kudos, but just really well wishes right now to Jim Beheim and his family. Uh, Jim Beheim had announced the other day that uh, he had been diagnosed uh, with COVID-19, uh, the head men's basketball coach, as we all know, from Syracuse University. Uh, he, uh, the numbers have been skyrocketing, especially in Northern New York and central New York in that area, the Syracuse Rochester area. And, uh, just want to wish everybody the best, wish everybody a happy Thanksgiving. Hopefully everybody is safe, uh, and that, uh, hopefully we can move past this pandemic as quickly as possible. Uh, 820 here, just about 820 right now on the primetime rundown. I know we certainly went more than a few minutes over tonight, but I certainly can't thank Rob, Casey, Larry, enough for joining us here this evening. Uh, before we wrap it up, we certainly want to let people know what's coming up on the Eastern Observer. We continue our partnership with the New York Professional Scouts Association as Joey showcases former Baltimore Orioles Major League Scout Jim Howard. This is the scout who found former closer Jim Johnson and starter Eric Bedard. That will come to you tomorrow morning at 11 a.m. right here on the Eastern Observer. We are 48 hours to Survivor Series, and tomorrow afternoon, the Essential Wrestling Podcast crew is here for a special episode. Al Carl, Ryan Joy, Tyler Adele, John Smith, John DeConte, and Gary Meheffy preview the Drew McIntyre-Roman Reigns match along with the rest of the Survivor Series card tomorrow, November 21st at 3 p.m. We here on the Primetime Rundown will be taking a break for the Thanksgiving holiday and hope you do so safely as well. But we will return two weeks from tonight, Friday, December 4th. Joey, Rob, I will not be here, but Joey, Rob, and the gang are back to deliver you two hours of talk on all of the latest topics in sports. And I'm sure that Joey and Rob will certainly give you their initial analysis um, on everything that's going on with the St. John's men's basketball program as their season is scheduled to kick off uh, this Wednesday night um against St. Peter's at Carneseca Arena and then at that point by December 4th ladies and gentlemen we will be less than a month into the start of the NBA season uh we will be in the home stretch of the NFL season heading into the playoffs and then we have a month until the puck drops on the NHL season so all of that on our next show two weeks from tonight Friday December 4th at 6 p.m right here on the Eastern Observer. And lastly, we'd like to be the first to announce that the Eastern Observer has partnered with the North American Wrestling Alliance in the great state of Florida. The Essential Wrestling Podcast will be welcoming professional wrestler Amber Nova and NAWA's owner Tony Capone to the show on Tuesday, December 8th, starting at 6 p.m. right here on the Eastern Observer. All programming can also be seen on the I-95 Sports Network and Zingo Television Channel 198. One last time, ladies and gentlemen, for my co-host, Rob DeLuca, our special guest, Casey Bryant, Larry Pertakowitz, I'm Ian Schreier, wishing all of you out there a very happy Thanksgiving, and we'll see you next time.